Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black Talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Decades ago, I said that, you know, I didn't know much about Brazil, still don't. But from what I heard from people who had been there, or people who were from there, uh, because I'd heard a long time ago that outside of Africa, the largest population of black people is in Brazil. But you don't ever see them on television, even on the Brazilian programs. It's every now and then, I mean, somebody will pan the camera, and you'll spot them on the, uh, at, at Mardi Gras time. But where are they the rest of the time? when they make the advertisements and do all the hoopla and whatnot. You wouldn't think that it's, you know, it was just, you would think that there's just a smattering of black people in Brazil. I mean, when I say black people, the black people that look like black people in, Af- in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. But the, the numbers are huge. But they all push back up in those hills. But when it comes to classification, from what I understand, Brazilians will tell you, we don't have any discrimination here. You know, everybody's the same. Color don't make no difference here. This is Brazil. Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro has been in office now for five months. The far-right populist was elected after running on an anti-establishment campaign, championing the country's military dictatorship and using racist and anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. But one of his main campaign promises was that he would stamp out crime in Brazil in brutal fashion. Bolsonaro throughout his career as a lawmaker was a heartliner when it came to security. He was one of these people who would repeat this often heard phrase here in Brazil saying, a good bandit is a dead bandit. That's Ernesto Lodoño, Brazil bureau chief for the New York Times. And he's been reporting on how police killings in Rio de Janeiro have been on the rise since Bolsonaro took office. According to government data, 558 people were killed during the first four months of this year. That's nearly five killings per day in one city alone. 
I spoke to Ernesto about the recent killings and how Bolsonaro's presidency is fueling what human rights advocates call extrajudicial executions. When you look back at what was on voters' minds last year when they went to the polls, I think there were two issues that were really weighing on them. One was corruption. People were fed up by what they regarded as a political class that was hopelessly corrupt. And people wanted to sort of burn down the system. And they saw in Bolsonaro somebody who was such a radical figure and such an affront to, to the establishment that he could probably just sort of burn down the house and rebuild something new. But people also had been fed up with insecurity, with rising crime, with robberies that had gone through the roofs in recent years. And Bolsonaro and allied politicians campaigned on a promise that it would soon become easier for the police to open fire on suspected criminals. Now, let's talk a little bit about the evolution of policing in Brazil. Uh, what, what are some of the tensions that have been historically present? Well, some of the larger cities in Brazil have for many decades been hugely challenging to police. Rio de Janeiro, which is where I currently live, is no exception. You have a topography that makes the city very, very complicated to control. You have drug trafficking gangs that essentially control vast areas of the city. What I mean by this is if you wanted to go into one of these favelas, one of these sort of lower income neighborhoods, oftentimes up on the hills, you have to walk past gang members with rifles that are policing checkpoints to go in. And these areas have become sort of no-go zones for police officers unless they come in to carry out a raid. There was a time a few years ago when the strategy was to try to build these communities up so the appeal of these drug gang organizations wouldn't be as strong. And that paid dividends. You had a period when crime went down, homicides went down, and the state had considerable success in, you know, planting a flag in these communities and reestablishing state services. However, 2014 comes around, the economy goes into a recession, money that was earmarked for some of these projects dried up, and crime comes soaring back in. So this is the context in which Bolsonaro's very sort of heavy-handed approach becomes politically attractive to voters who were sick and tired of this. And what has the reaction been among Brazilians about the recent spate of killings? It's mixed. On the one hand, I think people living in these low-income communities that have seen a, a very sharp uh, uptick in, in police violence, people feel afraid. You, for example, have a school in the district of Mare in Rio that saw fit to put up a big sign on the roof saying, this is a school, please don't shoot. And this came after there had been operations involving helicopters that were essentially just opening fire on suspected criminals from the air. However, I think what's interesting about this uptick in police use of force and police lethality is that it coincides with an overall drop in crime, an overall drop in homicides. So I think there are many Brazilians who say, you know, the means may be pretty ugly, but we seem to be approaching you know, some sort of momentum toward the right direction of reducing crime. Bolsonaro has been president for five months now. Does he still have the same level of support that he did when he was elected? Absolutely not. This is somebody who came into power with a very odd bedfellow patchwork um, of supporters. He drew support from evangelical churches, police and army circles, 
He drew support from people involved in, in certain industries that wanted broader access to protected lands. But at the end of the day, once they got him elected and once he came into power, his ability to deliver on many of the promises he made to this very diverse faction of supporters has really been called into question. The economy is now in a period of stagnation, so people are very worried about their jobs and their livelihoods, and they see no sign that he is really delivering on an economic agenda or in a series of policies that is going to put the economy back on track to grow. He has triggered a bunch of controversies and a bunch of scandals that are sort of of his own making, which has created an atmosphere of sort of chaos and animosity in Congress, where he has failed to sort of build a, a coalition strong enough to push through reforms or to really sort of govern in unison with Congress. And, you know, on the security front, even though some of the indicators are are sort of looking better than they did last year, you know, the country remains hugely, hugely violent. And the state is not really equipped to go after some of these problems in a meaningful way because it doesn't have much money to play with. Bolsonaro's son is facing allegations of corruption. What do we know so far about that investigation? You know, I think this is a this has been a, a really critical subplot in the Bolsonaro presidency. Here's somebody who billed himself as somebody who was going to let the judicial branch go after corruption unimpeded. And, you know, soon after his election, you had this scandal involving one of his sons who is a lawmaker uh, who is now suspected of having run a criminal organization from his former office as a local lawmaker. And instead of kind of empowering the the prosecutors and the federal police investigators and just sort of, you know, carrying out their work and, and looking under every rock, um, Bolsonaro's son has resisted at every turn the actions of prosecutors and investigators. And, and the president has shown no sign that he favors sort of a full and thorough investigation. Um, and he himself, he and his wife are ensnarled in some of these financial transactions that have drawn the scrutiny of investigators. So I think many Brazilians are starting to question whether the image that President Bolsonaro presented as somebody who was completely clean, a radically clean politician, um, is going to hold up to scrutiny now that he is in the highest office of the country. Ernesto Lodoño is the Brazil bureau chief for The New York Times. Ernesto, thank you so much for your reporting. My pleasure. Canada. We should move to Canada. Thousands of murdered and missing indigenous women and girls were the victims of a Canadian genocide. That's according to a report obtained by the CBC and scheduled to be released publicly in Ottawa tomorrow. The inquiry is reported to have concluded that their deaths were the result of state actions and inactions rooted in colonialism and colonial ideologies. Jorge Barrera is a reporter with the CBC's Indigenous Unit, and he has read the report and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Um, you know the stories of these women. Can you tell us uh, one of them? Well, there's one case that is from Thunder Bay, a woman named Christina Glitty, who was found you know, dying by a train bridge. And it came out that Thunder Bay police actually spoke to a man who said she was with her the night before her death on her last night on Earth, and there was no follow-up. Then it later turned out that his DNA was in an offender registry, and the Thunder Bay police, they never ran the DNA to determine, you know, whether it was his or not. So, you know, you have a disappearance where, you know, police do little, even though there's 
evidence pointing to possible culprits and there was failures in, in actually doing a proper and thorough investigation. So what were the findings um, briefly of this report? Well, the most explosive finding and the way it's been hitting, it's very, been very controversial since we've reported this and other media have picked that up as well, is that the, the inquiry determined that the thousands of murdered missing Indigenous women and girls were the victims of a genocide in Canada. And in, in some places, the report turns it as a Canadian genocide. There are disagreements in Canada, as you know, about what constitutes genocide, and there will actually be an additional report on the treatment of Indigenous peoples according to the legal definition of genocide. Um, but I take it Indigenous leaders have used that term for years. Why? The National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations issued a, Perry Bogart issued a statement yesterday outlining why. In Canada, just like in the U.S., there was Indian residential schools. And what's come out is that at least 6,000 Indigenous children died at these schools. A lot of it was diseases that were allowed to spread and deaths resulting from physical abuse. And some of these children are are buried in graves that are unmarked and are, are some you know, lost in time. And then after that, there was the 60s scoop where children were scooped out of um, their communities and fostered out into non-Indigenous homes. And now we have a situation with the child welfare system that is still seeing high rates of apprehension of Indigenous children. All these things and all these controls are what First Nations leaders say the tools of this genocide. The commission was charged with coming up with recommendations to address the causes of violence and increase the safety of Indigenous women, right? So what are some of those recommendations? They want a change in a criminal code to make any homicide connected to an intimate partner relationship where there's a pattern of violence to classify it immediately as a a first-degree murder, Hmm. which commands more jail time on conviction, like a a 20-year sentence which is called life here in Canada. And the other one is to consider violence against Indigenous women and girls an aggravating factor at sentencing. So basically, if you're an Indigenous woman and a crime is committed against you, that should be um, a factor that is considered in, in the case. Yes. So do you think this report, when it's released formally tomorrow, in what the government is calling a solemn national ceremony, will bring closure to these families? And and what's been the reaction of the First Nations um, of Canada? It's been mixed. On on the one hand, the conclusion of genocide by the inquiry is something that has been welcomed from Indigenous leadership in terms of this is validating what we've said for a long time. What I have heard is that there is some criticism that this conclusion may actually overshadow the specific issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls. And the process itself was deemed problematic by some families who felt that they had been left out or their needs weren't adequately met by the report. But this strong finding, this using you know, the word genocide, has taken things to another level in a lot of ways. But at the same time, you know, some families are saying, well, what about the specific cases that we were hoping that you would actually look into and tell us what's going on and, and what we can change about them to get justice? Jorge Barrera is a reporter with the CBC's Indigenous Unit. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hear these words. You will never be ignored again.
Your voice, your hopes, and your dreams will define our American destiny. And your courage and goodness and love will forever guide us along the way. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. On Monday night at the state banquet held in London in honour of Donald Trump, the president praised the eternal friendship between the UK and US. Today, on day two of his state visit to the UK and away from all the glittering ceremony, Mr Trump has been getting down to business. As we record this podcast, the president has just had a working lunch with the outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May and we'll have more on that shortly. But there have been protests as well as politics. I think it's important that this misogynistic, racist, anti-environment guy understands that not everybody likes what he's proposing and I want him to leave our NHS alone and I want us to keep our food standards up, which won't happen under, under a trade deal with him. He's perfectly welcome to come to our country, but we're also perfectly welcome to express our dislike and disapproval of him. He's rolling back rights for women in America. He's very disrespectful to our mayor. <laughs> We're very proud of. I'm Jewish. The rise of the far right in America is very, very worrying. And he has legitimised hatred against lots of people, and I don't approve of it. Those protesters, along with thousands of others, have been demonstrating on London's streets. Our Home Affairs correspondent Tom Simons was there too, and I asked him about the scale of these protests. Well, it's always very difficult to estimate. Um, It is thousands, I'd say, rather than tens of thousands. Uh, Trafalgar Square, where this protest started, which was close to being full, it takes about 20,000 people. Obviously, there'll be many more people coming in from other angles. So uh, thousands rather than tens of thousands, but an enthusiastic and a loud protest. Uh, Donald Trump said yesterday, as he sped through streets that had, in some places, been cleared of people watching for security reasons, that he hadn't seen any protests. Well, I think it's very clear that he will be able to hear these protests at least from Downing Street. And give us an idea, we obviously heard some very passionate voices there from people who have turned out to to make themselves heard. Give us an idea of what sorts of people are participating today. Well, as you heard there, it is a very, very broad coalition. It's not often you get such a broad coalition at a uh, protest like this. Really, everyone from groups on the left, anti-nuclear campaigners, climate change campaigners, LGBT rights campaigners, migrants' rights. The whole spectrum is here, but their view of Trump is a personal one. They dislike him personally. They dislike many of the things he's said. There are banners with long lists of things that have been said by Donald Trump that people dislike. And and I think the other split in the thinking is there are some who say they don't disrespect the office. They're not against the American president per se. They're against him personally. And there are others who say he should not have been given a state visit. Uh, One of the uh, banners I saw earlier was that simply the person holding the banner felt sorry for the Queen. That was Tom Simons. The man not. Race, class, genre and the dilemmas of black manhood. This is Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. There is comfort in the familiar. That's why Marlon Wade likes to head over to his local barbershop, Wrist Action. I just stop in. It's on MacArthur Boulevard 
in Oakland, California. He doesn't come for a cut. No hair, no hair. I just wear the ball head. He comes to shoot the breeze. <laughs> he points to one of the barbers, who's a friend. That's my son's godfather. Uh, that's one of my old school teammates. We play baseball together. Basically, Marlon likes to hang with people who know and understand him. People he grew up with. <laughs> Some years ago, when Marlon was in the market for a new doctor, he looked for that same feeling of connection. I had various choices. I had, like, I had over 20, 20 doctors to choose from. But one stood out. She was, like him, black, and like him, a practicing Muslim. She gets me, I get her. We talk about life, we talk about our religion. You know, if something's wrong with me, she's going to let me know. It's the kind of trusting relationship Marlon doesn't believe he'd find in a doctor of a different race. I don't think a lot of these doctors relate to people of my skin color. Like when it comes to heart disease, diabetes. Like a lot of these diseases can be researched and medically something done for it. But at the end of the day, my community not getting that service. A variety of studies do suggest that black men in America often receive inferior care compared to white patients. They have the lowest life expectancy of any major demographic group. Many of the diseases they are dying from are chronic or preventable. Now a growing body of research suggests Marlon Wade might be onto something in his choice of doctor. The black doctors were able to convince more effectively the patients to take more of the preventative services compared to the non-black doctors. This week on Hidden Brain, we consider a simple but controversial way to improve outcomes in medicine, education, and other fields. And we ask, what happens when the ideal of a colorblind society runs into hard evidence that you may get better outcomes by not being colorblind. When Owen Garrick was a kid growing up in the South Bronx, he lived across the street from a bunch of relatives, including his uncle Bobby. So he was the one that you could always hang out with, to the mall, to the store, to some friend's house. You can go swimming with him. He's a guy you can just jump in his car, come back at all hours of the evening, and he was your excuse, right? You know, mom, uncle Bobby, left, you know, had me staying out all night. But when he was 66 years old, Uncle Bobby found out he was dying of prostate cancer. So he started having bone pain due to the metastasis to his bone. Uh, and that brought him in. The pain brought him in. And so then he was diagnosed. He probably died a few months after he was diagnosed. In Owen's opinion, it was a preventable death. Prostate cancer is usually slow-growing. It's easy to detect. He could still be very much alive and, and still very much active in his community and with his family, uh, but unfortunately wouldn't go in for his preventative services. Owen says many of the older men in his family were the same way. They didn't trust doctors. They didn't get preventative care. This is the kind of story told over and over again in black America. And it's a story reflected in a grim statistic. The average life expectancy of black men is 72 years, about four years shorter than the average for white men. It's not just prostate cancer, it's cardiovascular disease, it's stroke, it's diabetes. Most of the death is due to preventable or chronic conditions. 
This is something Owen wants to change. He's a doctor and researcher. He runs Bridge Clinical Research, a company whose mission is to make the medical system work better for black Americans. Owen is tired of the bad news about black men and healthcare in America. He's tired of talking about the disparity in health outcomes. What Owen wants is a fix, a way to get black men, particularly low-income black men, to go to the doctor for preventative care. He wants doctors who will listen to patients and patients who will listen to doctors. So Owen and his fellow researchers, Marcella Alshon and Gran Graziani, designed a field study to try to answer one simple question. Will black men take more preventative care services if they're randomly assigned to a black doctor? Is it possible that the race of your physician matters in terms of your own health? To find out, Owen and his colleagues rented a medical clinic in Oakland. They recruited 14 black and non-black doctors to staff the clinic during the study. For patients, they turned to flea markets and barber shops in and around the East Bay. Places like Wrist Action, where Marlon Wade likes to hang out. And if you go to a black barbershop, you will have all sorts of black men in the barbershop. You'll have folks who, like me, you'll have my kids at that barbershop. You'll have folks who didn't graduate from high school and their kids. The first step was asking patrons in these places if they'd answer some basic questions. Some 1,300 men agreed to fill out a short survey about their socioeconomic status, health history, and level of trust in the medical system. For these efforts, they received cash or a voucher for a free haircut, plus a coupon for a free health screening. About half the men showed up at the clinic for that screening. Before their checkup, the clinic staff showed the men a picture of the doctor they'd been randomly assigned. They also asked them to select from a list of preventative care services that they'd be willing to receive. Height and weight to check body mass index, blood pressure, cholesterol, uh, which is total cholesterol, and a diabetes screen, which is hemoglobin A1C. At first, the men made similar choices. They all accepted generally the same level of preventative services. In other words, seeing the photos of the doctors did not change patients' decisions about what services to accept. Typically, the men would choose some of the services, but not all. They might agree to get their body mass index and blood pressure checked, but forego the tests for diabetes and cholesterol that come with a needle stick. But what happened next changed their choices. The doctor then comes in and says, okay, Mr. Smith, you've only selected these three. You know, you've only selected height and weight and blood pressure. We really recommend that you take all five because they're all recommended. They're all um, good for your health. As I said, some of the black patients were randomized to receive this advice from a black doctor, some from a non-black doctor. Did the race of the physician affect what patients did? The black doctors were able to convince more effectively the patients to take more of the preventative services. And not just by a little, by a lot. The black doctors were about 20% more successful than non-black doctors at getting patients to have their blood pressure and body mass measured. 
They were even more effective at persuading their patients to have invasive tests. For diabetes and the flu shot, the black doctors were about 50% more successful than non-black doctors. And then came the cholesterol results. There was a 72% difference in the ability of the black doctor to recommend and have the black male patient take cholesterol screening compared to the non-black doctor. 72%. Now, the real-life implications of these results might be significant. High cholesterol, for instance, can lead to heart attacks, strokes. What if black patients in the real world responded to their physicians like their counterparts in the study? Owen Garrick says the gap in the United States between blacks and whites in cardiovascular disease outcomes might shrink by nearly 20%. That could be 20% of the people living to see their grandkids graduate from college and high school, right? That's how I think about it. These results suggest they might be an easy, low-cost way to save the lives of black men. Owen and his colleagues wanted to understand what was going on. Why were the black doctors so much more effective? The researchers didn't think prejudice was at play because the patients rated all the physicians, black and non-black, as equally good. But then they discovered a clue. It was in the notes the doctors had written about their patients. We found that the black doctors actually wrote more notes um, compared to the non-black doctors about their patients. And often those notes talked about their non-health care issues. A wedding is coming up. Will the Warriors repeat as NBA champions? Like, so non-medical issues. The black doctors and black patients were connecting as human beings. They were talking about family, sports, life. It's the kind of chit-chat that says, I know where you're coming from. I hear you. Marlon Wade from the barbershop made the very same point about his doctor. She gets me, I get her. We talk about life, we talk about our religion. You know, if something's wrong with me, she's going to let me know. Owen's research is part of a growing body of work that suggests matching patients and doctors by race can make a difference in health outcomes. In another study, researchers found that Florida patients assigned to physicians of their own race were 13% less likely to die while in the hospital. These results were driven almost entirely by black patients matched with black physicians. The research raises difficult questions about our medical system, our society, and our biases. The clearest takeaway from the research is that warm and empathetic communication matters. Owen Garrick believes that doctors might be taught to bridge some of the differences he observed in his study. Because if communication is the mechanism, you can train or you should be able to train non-black doctors to more effectively communicate with their patients. There is a more daunting takeaway. If you want better outcomes in healthcare, especially among the most vulnerable patients, having a more diverse pool of physicians is crucial. Owen says what he wants is for patients to have a choice. If they want to see a black doctor, they can choose one. But right now, that's often not possible. 
four percent of uh, physicians are black. Blacks represent thirteen percent of the U.S. population, so an underrepresentation. It's important to note that choice is not just something blacks might prefer. In a follow-up survey, Owen and his team found that both black and white respondents indicated a same-race preference. 65% of blacks surveyed said a black doctor would better understand their concerns. 70% of whites said a white doctor would better understand them. There is a third implication of Owen's research, and it feels radioactive. Given the results, I asked him, should hospitals and medical centers match patients and doctors by race, particularly when it comes to black men? Owen challenged the notion that this needed to be a radioactive idea. Fraternities and sororities self-select by gender. You could argue that that's segregation. I wouldn't argue that that's segregation. But, you know, someone might. You know, a pessimist might. And I think in the pessimists of the world might argue that recommending black physicians for black patients is segregation. I don't see it that way. Still, Owen acknowledges he would be uncomfortable with the idea that hospitals would deliberately steer black patients to black doctors and white patients to white doctors. After all, we struggled as a nation for decades to overcome segregation. How would patients react if they were told when they showed up at a clinic, you're black, so we're sending you to the black doctor? There is some tension here, right? Because there are two values, I think, that are in conflict with one another here. I mean, there is one value that basically says, you know, we should all essentially treat one another the same. Mm -hmm. We should all get along well. We should all, you know, as Dr. King would say, look at each other's character and abilities and not the color of our skin or our gender. I mean, so that is an ideal. And the other ideal is, we should trust the data and we should trust the evidence and we should follow where the evidence leads. And it feels like those two values, following the evidence and the data and following this norm that we have about how we'd like our society to be, these two values are in conflict. Right. And they're partly in conflict because we don't live in an ideal world. And some might argue, skeptics of the world might argue that we profess to live in an ideal world when we know we know absolutely the world is not ideal. So given that, given the cards you're dealt, the life you live, the world we exist in, how do you best, in our case, accomplish improved health outcomes for all populations, and specifically in our research study, the black male population? And this issue of the race of the doctor seems to work. Seattle's a great place to visit because it has, I guess you could say, a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything. Nowhere is gentrification perhaps more visible in Seattle than in the city's historically black neighborhood, the Central District. For decades, it thrived as a cultural hub, but in the early 80s, the area became more desirable and more expensive. Many African Americans were eventually pushed out. But local podcaster and filmmaker Jeff Shulman isn't sure that's the end of the story. His new documentary is called On the Brink. And I spoke with him, as well as with longtime Central District resident Donald King, who appears in the film. I asked Jeff if there was a moment when he knew he wanted to make a documentary about the CD. With Seattle Growth Podcast, I've been going around the city asking people what do they think of the changes around them. And 
Uh, it took me a year into the podcast to talk to somebody from the Central District, at which point I just heard of the, the profound sense of loss and trauma. And the story was, it's a magnified version of what's happening in Seattle and neighborhoods across the city. And it's also, the more I dug into what happened in the Central District, it's the same story for African-American communities in cities around the country. So, Donald, Jeff starts asking questions. He starts meeting people. Yeah. What did you think when this guy shows up and says, tell me about your neighborhood? You know, the first thing I thought about was, you know, um, the idea, you know, does a white guy tell this story? But Jeff had um, a new look at it. He was new in town. He didn't have a lot of background in it. He heard these as stories of real people, of real lives that were being impacted by this. The photos that people shared of the neighborhood over the mm -hmm. decades, many of them are in black and white that we see in the film. They are so evocative. The ball games, the parades, the the drum lines, the businesses, they're all just so vivid. And I'm, I'm wondering what they sparked. What has been interesting to me as now a mature <laughs> uh, person looking at the visibility and invisibility of African-Americans uh, for the 70 years of my lifetime, uh, that many people don't see us in pictures that are 60, 70, 80 years old, uh, because at the time we were invisible. We didn't occupy a space of real life, of activities that of every other American was involved in, because we weren't shown that in the movies. We weren't shown it in most magazines or news stories. Uh, going and, to dances. Going to dances. Uh, uh, going to school. Serving having, in the military. Yeah, yeah, having baseball games. You know, the, the kinds of things that every other American enjoyed, we didn't seem to be connected to that in, in popular, popular media and popular stories. Donald, how long have you lived in the Central District now? Uh, 40 years now. And is it possible for you to encapsulate the changes that you've seen in that time and what mm -hmm. it means to you? Yeah, you know, uh, I have a different lens as a both a planning and architectural professional. Um, what has happened should not be surprising to me, even though it has. Um, I was a planning commissioner back in the late 1980s when we were working on the comprehensive plan and the idea of how to... Uh, bring more density into the cities, how to limit growth in uh, the edges of the suburb and into wilderness and farmland. And uh, I was all for that. Uh, what we didn't do at the time was to think about what the consequences could be. What was the downside to reviving a neighborhood, to uh, having a neighborhood more safe, more, more attractive, with better amenities and better cultural facilities and and, and parks and schools, uh, once the community became attractive, it became attractive to people with higher incomes and other means and resources. You say you should have known mm -hmm. what the impact of your professional work was going to be, yes. but you didn't see it coming. What do you no. mean? Well, we didn't see, uh, like I said, we didn't see the downside to it. Uh, even if we did, there were no vehicles in place to counter it. And what impact has that had on you personally in your life as you reflect oh, on this? The impact on me is to be uh, one of those people that are living amongst people that uh, incomes are now maybe 10 times mine, even as a professional person. 
uh, incomes are higher. People are younger. And the community has changed. And the community has changed. The demographics have changed wholesale. Jeff, if I can just turn back to the film for a little bit. You spoke with Helen Coleman and her daughter, Squirt. And this is the Helen Coleman who used to run Miss Helen's Diner, a soul food restaurant. Um, And they shared lots of memories as well. Um, And then there came this moment. This area, we were good to it, but... We didn't protect it. Didn't protect it. We didn't protect it. You know, the regret and the grief that you hear there, it's just so palpable. What do you understand them to mean by that? We didn't protect it. Uh, You know, we've got these huge economic forces. We've got these huge forces that were created in the past by the racial covenants and the redlining. But at the end of the day, uh, the individuals I spoke to said, you know what, this is where we are. We've lost something that's really meaningful to us, but we're going to find a way to bring something back. And so uh, there was an ownership of it's now up to the people in the central district, the people who are still left to shape the future. Uh, they They can't stop development, but as we're starting to see, they can shape it in a way that uh, brings a home uh, that they that the individuals had. And in the film, you focus on some people who are not giving up. Um, tell us, what are residents doing now to keep the community together? Yeah, so there's a variety of individuals and, and groups coming together and saying, we want to shape what the future of the Central District looks like. Uh, they want to bring not just uh, residents back, but businesses back and also help uh, stem the losses that the churches and institutions are facing. Uh, so one such example that uh, some of the individuals talked about in the film is Africatown, which is a uh, community land trust that's partnered with nonprofit organizations working with the city uh, to try to build uh, new developments such as the Liberty Bank building. When just one business owner says, I'm going to be in the Central District, it's inspiring to other business owners to say, you know, there might be other places I could operate, but I'm going to also be a part of bringing something back and uh, and shaping the, the Central District of the future. And that music is Power of One by Cola. It's featured in the documentary On the Brink. Jeff Schulman is host of the podcast Seattle Growth and a marketing professor at the University of Washington. He also co-directed the film. And Donald King lives in the Central District, and he appeared in the film. On the Brink premieres at Seattle's Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute this Sunday, June the 9th. KUW News. The stereotype of the so-called welfare queen has been used to demonize those on public assistance for decades. It's a politically potent image depicting an undeserving aid recipient getting rich on the backs of taxpayers. Politicians, including former President Ronald Reagan, have been accused of exploiting this image as a kind of racist dog whistle. Meanwhile, the original welfare queen that Reagan used as a basis for his caricature was based on a real person. The new book, The Queen, tells the story of a woman who went by many names, was accused of many crimes, and whose image as a Cadillac-driving welfare recipient has lived on. Hari Srinivasan recently spoke with the book's author, Josh Levine, about the real-life woman behind the moniker. Her name was Linda Taylor, and she was identified by the Chicago Tribune in 1974 as a person who had committed welfare fraud 
while driving fancy cars, including a Cadillac. And very quickly after that, she was given the nickname the Welfare Queen. And it was a nickname and a stereotype that really very quickly blew up. You know, it was a Chicago paper that gave her that nickname, but it's really Ronald Reagan on the campaign trail that makes that phrase such a household idea. Uh, How did it get from the Chicago paper uh, into his speeches? Reagan was looking for kind of outrageous stories about welfare. And this idea that there were welfare cheats out there was something that created outrage. In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers, to collect food stamps, social security, veterans benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year. And he didn't say the phrase welfare queen in his speeches, but there was such baggage attached to welfare at that point that I think the electorate really understood what he was saying and really knew what he was talking about. Uh, Welfare has been an effective talking point for a whole generation of politicians. I have a plan to end welfare as we know it, to break the cycle of welfare dependency. When Bill Clinton said he wanted to end welfare as we know it during his 1992 campaign, that was enormously popular with people on both sides of the aisle. I think is partly responsible for um, his victory in 1992. And then when welfare reform passed uh, in 1996, welfare went from being an entitlement to being uh, temporary assistance. Mm-hmm. And if you're below the requisite poverty level, you still don't necessarily get benefits today. Tell us a little bit more about her. I mean, she was kind of a racial chameleon almost. In the 70s, she was coded as being black. People perceived welfare recipients at that point mm. as being black. But some of the first stories about her noted that she could change her identity by changing a wig, that she could be black or white or Latina or Filipina. And this was seen as just another example of her deviousness. But as I found in my research, her history with race is far more complicated and in many ways sad. She was born in the Deep South and was rejected by her white relatives due to her, you know, mixed race identity. She was somebody who was forced to pass because of the way growing up as a black person in a white family. Mm. In the South, it was illegal for her to be black in certain circumstances. It's just a very complicated and fraught history for her. Do you think that this welfare queen idea would have stuck nearly as much if she had presented as a white woman or was just a white woman? I think that she was the right person at the right place at the right time, Mm. or depending on your vantage, the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. I think this idea of the welfare queen was something that was so powerful um, and such a strong message politically. And you can see that in how you know, she was arrested for kidnapping in Chicago. She was accused of murder. But all of that information got left out and sanded away. That's not something that Reagan ever mentioned, certainly. No. I mean, that's some of the fascinating stuff around your reporting is that while she's officially 
uh, arrested for welfare fraud, kidnapping and potential murder charges in her life uh, are some things that we don't hear about. One of the more remarkable things that I found in my research was that she was arrested and indicted for welfare fraud in 1974. When she's out on bail, she is um, suspected of homicide. A woman that she was living with died of a drug overdose, and there was very strong reason to believe that Taylor had been responsible for it. And yet um, she isn't ultimately charged when the story of her life is told contemporaneously in the news, on television, in speeches by Ronald Reagan and others, that just doesn't get mentioned at all. It's like it never even happened. So what do we know about her today? Does she exist uh, anywhere? Did she die? Does she have family? What I've learned is that she went to prison for welfare fraud in the late 1970s. When she got out, she eventually moved to Florida And in the 90s, she was hit with federal charges there, ended up incarcerated. She was eventually released, and her family took her back to Illinois, where she died in 2002 in total obscurity and under a different name. Josh, why do this story? Why spend years researching this? What drew you to it? I wasn't aware that there had been a real-life model for the welfare queen myth and stereotype. Uh, when I learned about it back in 2012, that Linda Taylor had been really the first person to be given this nickname and that the image of the fur coats and the Cadillac came from her. I was fascinated both by that fact and the idea that a myth uh, and a stereotype could endure in a person's image, but that person herself could be forgotten and erased was just so kind of transfixing to me. And I became obsessed with trying to figure out who this person had been and why she had been forgotten. All right. The book is called The Queen. Josh Levine, thanks so much. Thank you. Five, four, three. She's pure alligator, pure white. Two. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. One. Albino Having done this for 13 years, I've seen a lot of variety of fawns that have come into us from preemies and, um, you know, injured animals. But yesterday we got in our first ever albino fawn. And the gentleman that found her uh, was driving down a road by the rice fields and thought he saw something white in the road. So he stops, picks up the animal and then says, this is either a really strange goat or it's a fawn. And so he called me and said, hey, I don't know if I'm nuts or not, but can you look at this picture? I'm going to text you and tell me, is this a fawn? Well, sure enough, it's a fawn and it's an albino. She's probably about three weeks old is what we're guessing. Um, she, when she came into us, she was dehydrated, obviously, and hungry. I think she had been out in the roadway for quite a while. There were no injuries that we saw. Um, so the first night, whenever they come in, they're not accustomed to a nipple from the bottle, right? It's, they're used to mom. So that's kind of a challenge to get them to nurse. 
but by this morning she was doing a much better job and this afternoon's feed she did really well and drank almost a whole bottle. So I'm very encouraged that she's acclimating to the new environment. She is housed next to a couple of fawns, one that's about four days old and her roommate that's a couple weeks old. It's a whole different scenario with the albinos because we have to worry about the hot weather, the sun, and how it affects skin just like a very fair-skinned person and the eyes and all. So we set up a special little pen for it where it's got a black cover over its little teepee area with straw to hide when it gets warm. We're using sunscreen on it and we have a lot of shade cloth up on the far side of the enclosure to help protect it. This little albino that came to us is very special. I mean, it's a learning experience for us. We've never had one before. Um, she just seems so fragile, and I, I know they um, you know, do fine on their own once they're old enough to manage. But just, yeah, she's a special little gift this year, I think. And we're going to enjoy this whole process of working with her and watching her be released. The man nut. Linda Fairstein won fame prosecuting criminals and then wrote crime fiction. Did she allow her gift for fiction to guide her powers as a prosecutor? Linda Fairstein was a founder of the Sex Crimes Unit of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which inspired Law & Order SVU. She's written best-selling crime novels like Blood Oath and Death Dance about a hard-nosed, tender-hearted assistant DA, Alexandra Cooper, who eats in a lot of New York's classiest Italian restaurants on a public servant's salary. Now there's a mystery. There are now calls to boycott Linda Fairstein's books. She's resigned from several foundation boards. Just yesterday, her publisher dropped her. Ava DuVernay's Netflix series, When They See Us, has premiered. It's about Corey Wise, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana, Anton McRae, and Youssef Salam, five black and Latino teenagers who were wrongly convicted of a brutal rape and beating of a woman in Central Park in 1989 when Linda Fairstein ran the sex crimes unit. The young men said their confessions were coerced. DNA evidence always pointed to another perpetrator, not the teens, who became known as the Central Park Five. An imprisoned rapist named Matthias Reyes confessed in 2002 to being the actual Central Park criminal, but the young men spent a collective 40 years in prison before their convictions were voided, while Matthias Reyes went on to assault and rape more women and murder one who was pregnant at the time. Ava DuVernay's series shows Linda Fairstein refusing to follow other leads and saying lines like, Every young black male who was in the park last night is a suspect. The real Linda Fairstein calls the portrayal of her grossly and maliciously inaccurate in resignation letters and says case files and public records will confirm she acted responsibly. Ava DuVernay says Miss Fairstein refused to meet with her unless she could approve the scripts of her series. Linda Fairstein's attorney says that is not true. Daniel R. Alonzo, who served with Miss Fairstein at the district attorney's office, said... Wrongful conviction is a terrible, terrible thing, but reminds people how Linda Fairstein has dauntlessly prosecuted rapists and worked to change laws to help the victims of sexual crimes. He told the New York Times, I think it's terrible to cancel someone's entire career over one matter. Prosecutors have demanding, complicated, stressful jobs. But if that one matter was your life, what would you think? 
showing out for the white cop. A former Minneapolis police officer by the name of Mohammed Noor uh, has just been sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison after he fatally shot an Australian yoga instructor who unfortunately had called him or called the cops to report what she believed was a sexual assault in an alleyway. This is a story that broke a few years ago. He was found guilty on um, April 30th of third degree murder and second degree manslaughter for killing 40 year old Justine Damon outside her home. Uh, he was actually acquitted of a more serious charge of second degree intentional murder, which makes sense. now. If you remember this story, maybe you don't remember, uh, the woman, the, the victim here was sitting in her car and she was waiting for the cops to show up. At this point, Mohammed Noor arrives to the scene and approaches the car and something happened. There was allegedly some sort of noise and he got spooked by it. And then he immediately opened fire. He shot through the window. He shot through the window, exactly. The car window, uh, killing Justine Damon. Now, it was an outrageous story, and I'm happy that there are finally some consequences because he didn't ask any questions. He got scared over a noise. Is that all it takes for you to open fire? But it is interesting because this is one of the rare instances where we do see consequences, and he is a Somali immigrant. I mean, it just seems like, you know, Right, you wonder like implicit in it, is it? Well, he he must be too much because he saw a white woman and still shot her. Like, that's yeah. the question. No, I think it's obvious. The reason that he was punished is because it is much easier to punish, you know, a, a black immigrant than um, for killing a white woman. But I'm not gonna do that whole like Bill Cosby, Stanford rapist thing because how where we all stand on that is they both need to be in jail. Yes. <laughs> Bill needs to be where he is for even longer and the Stanford rapist, his sentence needs to matches. Like, you know what I mean? So, I mean, this guy, this is what's supposed to happen when, just like I said, you know when how I jump up when Max barks or when somebody sneezes really loud when it's quiet? I cannot be responsible for other people's lives and holding a gun. Right. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I vouch for that. You, <laughs> right. But you know, you know that a noise scared you so much that you couldn't even think and you shot through a window. Exactly. Just There's no logic in that. There's no, no noise coming from inside. You, you know what I mean? Like, and and she called the cops for to herself. Report, yeah, to report a possible sexual assault in that alleyway. And the first thing that happens as soon as the cops show up is she gets shot and killed. Yeah, she and the reason she approached the cop was she was like, "Thank goodness here, the yeah. police are here. I'm gonna go notify them that it's okay." Well, uh, the judge in this case said the law does not allow license because someone is a good person. Good people sometimes do bad things. The reason why she said that was because uh, the defense argued that he did not have a criminal record, that he was a good citizen. And she's basically saying, no, an innocent person died as a result of this incompetence. And he did something bad and he deserves this sentence. And I agree with her. I just wish that this type of logic was applied to most of the cops, or at least all of the cops who were committing these types of acts. The stars at night are big and bright. Hagar gave the valedictorian address last weekend to the MHA Conrad High School class of 2019 in Dallas. Well, Part of the address, anyway, when she said, quote, to Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and all the other children who became victims of injustice, her mic was cut off. Ruha Hagar joins us now. 
from Dallas. Thanks so much for being with us. Of course. May we invite you to complete your sentence? So I was going to finish by saying to Trayvon Martin, Tammy Rice, and all the other children who became victims of injustice, to the kids across the globe affected by war, famine, persecution, child labor, who have lost years of education due to hunger, displacement, lack of finances, and lack of educational resources. I'm sorry. Why was it important for you to say that? So initially, I just wrote their names because I knew their their stories and I knew of the injustice. I was simply trying to remember their names and make the graduating class understand how much of a privilege it is that we are here and that we are graduating. But the importance of it, really, I understood it when I had a talk with my teacher and, and he wanted me to just delete the names. Like, he had no problem with anything else but just the names saying that um, it's very controversial and, and it'll um, create hate towards uh, white people. And then my principal, when he said, it's out, outside the guidelines and you're sending the wrong message and, and you're not in a position of power, so you shouldn't even mention the names. So that's when I understood that these names are making people uncomfortable and maybe they should be said. You happen to be uh, from a refugee immigrant family yourself, don't you? Yeah, that is correct. And g- give us some idea of the demographics of your school. Um, so our school is actually majority um, minority, <laughs> meaning we have a lot of immigrants and a lot of uh, minorities on, uh, in our school. And my school is, um, is very diverse, but also the administration. They do a very good job of accommodating to all of our needs. I don't say it enough in every interview, but my school is a great school. I don't hate my principal or, or any of, uh, of the people in my school. I just think they made a mistake, and um, this is a learning opportunity for them. So in the end, why, why, uh, why didn't you just say, and remember, tomorrow is the first day for the rest of your life. Have a great summer. <laughs> why didn't I just give a generic speech? Because I feel like if change is going to happen, we are going to have to speak outside of the guidelines, and we are going to have to break a few boundaries. What adults think that we want to hear at graduation is completely incorrect. Because all of the graduating students um, that spoke to me afterwards, they were happy that I mentioned the names, and they were happy of, of the message I was trying to uh, send to them. Because we have been living with, with these realities for a while. I'm not introducing a new idea at graduation when I say those names. I'm just remembering and paying respect and, and really making them understand of the privilege. Hmm. What are you going to do now? Hopefully um, go to UT and finish my bachelor's. University of Texas, yeah. At Austin, correct. Uh-huh. I want to hopefully work for a nonprofit organization that um, does humanitarian work in the Middle East. Well, you do well. And uh, remember, mm-hmm. tomorrow is the first day for the... Re- <laughs> I can't say that with a straight okay. face. I'll remember that. Ruha Hagar. Valedictorian of the Emma J. Conrad High School in Dallas. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. Black babies cost less. Well, the mother of Tamir Rice is still fighting to prevent the officer who shot her son from getting his job back. Today, Samaria Rice dropped off 170,000 petitions to the Cleveland Police Union Hall. The signatures represent people demanding the union stop its challenge to overturn the firing of Officer Timothy Lohman. The petitions came from people across the country and around the world and were posted on change.org and moveon.org. And we don't want him back in our community on our Cleveland streets. 
I don't think it would be safe for the city of Cleveland nor the residents. The petitions don't really mean much to me right now. I mean, I have a job to do. Um, we appealed this months ago. Um, we weren't happy with the arbitra arbitration's decision. Lohman was never indicted for the shooting of Rice. He was fired for lying on his police application. That's what the police union is appealing in court. I ain't felt the pressure in a little while. It's gonna take some getting used to. Floating all through the city with the windows down, putting on like I used to. They never told me when you get the crown. It's gonna take some getting used to. New friends all in their old feelings now. They don't love you like they used to, man. From the incident last night that took place with ten and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter of the game between the Warriors and the Raptors. Raptors star Kyle Lowry shoved by Warriors investor Mark Stevens. The NBA and the Warriors released a joint statement today announcing that Stevens is banned from NBA games and all Warriors activities for one year and fined half a million dollars, all that effective immediately. Here's Kyle Lowry, who spoke just a couple of hours ago on the reason why he did not react. I understand that at the moment my team needed me. Um, I understand that there, there are plenty of um, fans and kids in the, in the world watching this game. And I understand that like, I, I have two young children and, you know, to being able to, to, to hold myself to a certain standard, which I do, I hold myself to a high, high standard. And uh, I got to make sure that I, I uphold that. And that's a big thing for me is being a guy that, you know, upholds himself to a high standard and um, never, you know, letting guys like him get under your skin. I don't know how I reacted in that situation, but the guy, you know, blatantly pushed him. It was wasn't Kyle wasn't even near him. He went across one or two people to get to him. Uh, but you know, Kyle kept his cool and he kept it smart and because we're gonna need him this this series and obviously within that game. You don't want to see that in our game and and hopefully it doesn't happen. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think it was a reflection of how we handle you know business here you know, as a Warriors organization and franchise we we had you know have a high standard and, and do things with class and professionalism. I'd like to welcome in Mark Jackson now, of course, on the call of all of our finals games here on ESPN and ABC. Mark joining us from Union Square, downtown San Francisco, over the bridge for me, Mark. Uh, obviously, your perspective on this is quite unique because you were part of the game call, and you guys were talking about this, obviously, as the incident went down. Big picture in your mind, Mark. We've seen this. We've seen other things, even including Drake. We've seen things through the years. How can the league get this under control? Because at this point, it's scary, the potential of what else could happen. Well, I can't. I, I won't put Drake in this category. Drake gave the head coach, his head coach, a massage. That 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 was nothing, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, at the end of the day, the the behavior portrayed last night by a part owner of the Golden State Warriors could be a good man. I don't know him personally. Could be a good man. This is not about who he is as an individual. This is about the actions that took place last night. Absolutely unacceptable for somebody to do that. You take a look at how Kyle Lowry handled himself. He had every right to push this man back and perhaps slug him, but he controlled himself and conducted himself the way a professional is supposed to. Should be applauded. At the same time, in my opinion, the owner should be forced to uh, sell his part. And let's not call him a, a, a part, an investor. That's minimizing him. He is a part owner of the Golden State Warriors. Right. That's how he introduces himself at the restaurant or at the cl golf club or wherever. At the end of the day, this is not about who he is as a man. This is about the actions that, he, that took place last night. 
absolutely. And you're using the word investor. We're using that because that is specifically what the team did release. But yes, he is a minority owner. You say, though, the fine is not enough. 500000 the one year, not enough. You want him to sell his stake. Well, if, if, if he was a regular fan and he did this, we'd ban him for life. You look at the, the Utah Jazz fan that was disrespectful to Russell Westbrook. He paid a price for it. Now, maybe one day you revisit it, but the actions that took place last night, and I would understand it if he, a little bit more if he fell on uh, Mr. Stevens. He did not. He had nothing to do with the situation. I applaud Kyle Lowry and the way he handled himself. Absolutely. And I will say this. By mentioning Drake, Mark, all I was saying was in general, whether it's positive or negative, when there's that much access from fans with coaches, with players, that's when that line can be blurred. And that's when you never know how things can go. But I think, hey, everybody pay attention. Mark, you believe that maybe more should be done with Mark Stevens. Thank you for your perspective, as always. And we look forward to your call of game four. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 8, 2019. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, questions, counter-racist suggestions, or observations. The number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Make sure you are consuming your water. Very important. Drink more water. Just saying that I feel like uh, at least over the past week, certainly longer than that, but it's been flagrantly uh, in my vision uh, for the past week or so. Uh, Just large quantities of non-water beverages being consumed by non-white people. And that's just, they had that big segment on health. Uh, Racism, white supremacy does a lot to corrupt non-white people's health, black people specifically. You got the coon man on uh, as well. Uh, Racism, in fact, is the number one thing that corrupts the health of black people, non-white people worldwide. One aspect of that is all the poisonous foods, toxic uh, things that they uh, place around us in our environments and uh, non-water beverages and even not giving us access to clean water. That is a major aspect of white supremacy racism. Flint, for sure. Flint at all, really. Uh, But drink more water. Drink more water. Compensatory call-in. So much to share. Uh, I do want to pause. When you get signals uh, from the creator, listen. They are important. Sometimes there are messages and signals that are just for you. Mr. Fuller has said that a number of times. I think it's important. I think within the past few weeks, Uh, I commented, I said that I thought it was important that there were so many casual references, people saying that a victim of white supremacy, Drake, who does have a white parent, 
uh, that he should be violently attacked. Non-white people and white people were publicly encouraging violence against him. I said that's important, really, anytime that people are encouraging, cheering, applauding, celebrating violence against a non-white person, especially someone black. Whoa, major act of white supremacy. And everyone should stand up and call it exactly that white terrorism Uh, and freak. And it is important, not because unlike Thomas, I am not a Drake fan. It is important because in the system of racism, white supremacy, sometimes it's, hey, violence against Drake. And if Drake is not here, if Lil Wayne is here, if Kyle Lowry is here, Gus T. Renegade is here, that nigga will do. Any nigga will do. That is frequently the logic of racist man, racist woman, racist child. I was a little hesitant about saying that. I didn't know. I know amongst I don't I don't get the impression that many of the folks that are interested in counter racist content are also Drake fans. Uh, So I didn't know. Uh, And talking about sports, I try not to encourage a lot of focus on entertainment. But that was such a flagrant uh, act of violence uh, to have this white billionaire, Mark Stevens, assault uh, a black male and particularly the man that Kyle Lowry is not a small guy. Like in comparison to uh, Shaquille O'Neal or some of the other large people that play athletics professionally. Okay, yeah, he's not that big. But in comparison to most of the listening audience and myself and Mr. Stevens, Kyle Lowry is a big guy. He is over six feet tall, over 200 pounds. Looks like he probably has done some weightlifting. Uh, He is not a small guy. Mark Stevens shoved him with, there was no hesitation. Oh, that is a big guy. Black dude, I need a taser and somebody call 911. I'm so afraid. Oh, I'm so afraid. Isn't that what James Lowen said? They go out to the suburbs, the sundown towns, because they're so afraid of black people. He did not seem afraid at all. He did not look like he was quivering. He didn't look like he was ready to call security. He didn't look like he was ready to sprint away from the front row. He stood there shoved that black male and then cursed in his face. Didn't back down. Didn't think, oh, I better run. He's going to slug me. Uh Oh, I better beat it. He stood right there. And I mean, Mr. Lowry said that he, he told him, you know, go F himself. I was thinking he probably was ready to call him a nigger coon, something of, you know, to that effect. I don't know. Uh, and I even have to stop on that. White reporters have publicly acknowledged that black professional athletes, even at the collegiate level, are explicitly told to expect things like that. Whites to curse at you and to be really uh, uh, violent and aggressive, most of the times verbally, and to not respond and to not say anything about that publicly. Whites did a report on this back uh, when Marcus Smart, he said a fan called him a nigger and he pushed him. Uh, And he got, you know, suspended for a whole bunch of games. He plays for the Boston uh, Celtics now. Uh, But there was a report that came out at that time. Anywho, I just I think it's important. They were just talking like days ago about many people joking about being violent against Drake. And then within days, 
Kyle Lowry is assaulted. Anyone, I said it yesterday, anyone, if uh, folks have contact with Mr. Lowry, I tweeted it and I'm going to continue to retweet it. You can uh, retweet at Until Justice, share it on social media. Mr. Lowry, please file a police report. It is not a good precedent to allow, uh, well, I won't use the word allow, but it is not a good precedent, uh, whites flagrantly assaulting black people publicly while they are on their job. This is workplace racism uh, in front of a global audience. That is a crime. There should be a police report filed uh, and this can be adjudicated properly in a court of law. They can review the footage. There are many, many witnesses who should be more than happy to testify and they can figure out if an actual crime was committed and what should be done about that. But I think a police report, file a, a police report. You don't have to call 911 to do this. I think a listener uh, some years ago suggested you can go to the police station. You can wait a few days, calm down, go there and request to file a report and go through all of the paperwork, you can do that. Mr. Lowry, he could even wait until the finals is over. Celebrate, do the parade, and then file a police report against Mark Stevens for assault. He should have a criminal record uh, for assault. It should be beyond whatever punishment. Oh, and that was the other thing before I move on. Remember Donald Sterling? Former owner of the Clippers, I think he got a uh, billion dollars, might have been two billion dollars when he was uh, allegedly forced to sell the team after the audio recording was released. He and V. Stiviano, where he was talking about not having these black people around, didn't want her hanging out with them at the games and such. And then got and said Magic Johnson was this, talked really bad about him. I think what Mark Stevens did is substantially worse. That is a far greater violation than what Donald Sterling did. All he did is say, you know, some things, you know, uh, what, you know, I can't say private because it was, it was a acknowledged recording. So, but anyway, all he did was make some statements about black people and Magic Johnson. This white man, Mark Stevens, assaulted a black male, an innocent black male for no reason in front of a global audience of millions. I think and he cursed at him after that. He cursed at him and may have said some worse things. I think that is a substantially worse violation. Donald Sterling was banned for life and forced to sell uh the team. I think uh Mark Stevens should have got a substantially harsher penalty. Continuing the Cows 10 year anniversary yoga retreat Labor Day edition, California. Uh, the deadline to register is tomorrow. That would be Sunday. Uh, if you need information, feel free to drop me an email until justice at gmail.com. There's information on the blog racism hyphen notes The details again, dates Thursday, August 29. Sunday, September 1, that is Labor Day weekend, so I am told uh, we will be ending on that Sunday. So if you have Monday off or what have you, you should have time to get back to your typical residence uh, to go about your normal business. 
uh, but it would be August 29 to September 1, four days, three nights, Lake Arrowhead, California. All meals included, uh, that would be all plant-based meals for all four days of the retreat. Uh, Chef Nadira has agreed to come hang out with us for the four days uh, and prepare all of the meals uh, for the time we are there. She got unanimous praise in Virginia, uh, myself included. Uh, I was extraordinarily impressed uh, with everything, carrot hot dogs included. She was masterful uh, in the kitchen uh, and we even had food workshops. Uh, so we should have that as well if anyone is uh, intimidated or just looking to learn more uh, about how you can prepare vegetables in a really tasty, healthy manner. Uh, if you're looking to change your eating habits, uh, we're doing yoga every day, yoga in the morning, yoga in the evening. Exercise is important. Talking about the, the health segment that we heard uh, this evening, diet and exercise uh, are huge components uh, that can go a long way to promoting better health and dealing with some of the stress and trauma of white terrorism. Uh, but we do yoga in the morning, yoga in the evening. I'll be teaching the classes, certified instructor. Uh, hopefully you will enjoy and find some relaxation and benefit from the yoga classes. Uh, we'll have counter racist workshops in addition to the food workshops, uh, dealing with some of the content from the 10 years uh, of the cows, as well as uh, health wellness component and really looking at that as counter racism. Dr. Lathan, we emphasized that during her visit a few days back, uh, but that's what we will be doing. August 29, September 1, Lake Arrowhead, California, private lake included. Eating healthy, do a little yoga. I'm sure there'll be some dialogue about workplace racism and uh, enjoying sunshine as we wrap up the summer 2019. Uh, but drop an email if you need any additional information. The deposit non-refundable $400 uh, due tomorrow. We'll have our location secured and make sure that Chef Nadira is hanging out with us in California. Very much looking forward uh, to being able to share. I was just hearing some of the reports from people who participated at the retreat and continued to eat healthy uh, and view health and wellness, being mindful about every time we sit down to eat, what we put in our mouth, what we have on our fork, that that right there is counter racism. Hearing that some of the folks that were at the retreat lost 35 pounds, just keeping up with the yoga and plant-based eating, stunning. Uh, Hoping we can do it again. You can use the PayPal to register. You can ask, drop an email again, untiljustice at gmail.com. If folks have any questions, comments, uh, I think I was able to respond to folks who emailed. If I missed anyone, drop an email again, untiljustice at gmail.com. We are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest. If you think the program is constructive, you can visit said blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Much obliged to all the folks who have kept 
helped keep us on for a decade, uh, celebrating our 10-year anniversary with part of the yoga retreats. Um, Even the significance of that, talking about Kyle Lowry being assaulted at the finals, owner upset, Negro is coming here, messed up our so-called dynasty. The Warriors dominated for five years to think we have been here for 10 years. Thank you to listeners who have supported, listeners supported. That is why we have been here for a decade. If you're not in the PayPal, drop an email. We can get you a physical mailing address. And or you can use the Amazon wish list. It is linked on the blog. Uh, it is listed under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, tremendous gratitude to all the folks who have nabbed items over the past 10 years. I hope the cows has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy and has provided accurate, constructive information on what white supremacy racism is, what it means to be classified as white. A few other notes. Let's see. First of all, the report on health care. I did think that was important uh, information, really importance of having more black doctors. Uh, I know folks have talked about getting therapists, dentists, uh, healthcare professionals in general. Uh, and it would be so helpful if there were more resources, more black providers, uh, again, to encourage more black children to pursue these fields. That's an aspect of counter-racism there. Although that's a lot of white supremacy racism, too, in terms of making sure that black scholars are not able to become doctors. Dr. Welsing talked about her career and even what happened to her at an HBCU, Howard University. So it's going to be racism regardless. But that's one. Uh, But I also even in hearing all the information on that report. White people already know that racists are not ignorant about, you know, black people being more receptive to black doctors and This is not news because in researching eugenics years before the Coon Man, you had uh, Margaret Sanger. Eugenics, major component of white supremacy, white terrorism uh, in the 20th century, century worldwide. In that program, one component was the knowledge that racists like Margaret Sanger had that black people would be more receptive to this sort of medical advice from another black person as opposed to someone white coming in to say, oh, wait a minute, we don't want you niggers to be doing too much reproducing. So they said we will get black preachers to do this. Uh, This is documented information unless I've been uh, misinformed. uh, misinformed. We've talked about this on the broadcast uh, before. I believe even some of this information is in my top five book, Medical Apartheid, Harriet A. Washington. In fact, I'm very sure if I took 30 seconds, I'm pretty sure I put my finger on the highlight uh, because they solicited even, uh, unfortunately, victim of white supremacy, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. into their campaign. Uh, But be that as it may, whites are not ignorant about this fact that sometimes black people are suspicious of white people. They know what they're doing to us. They didn't need that long uh, report uh, to come to that conclusion. Next. The segment 
on the albino fawn that was just this week. I was not even looking for anything related to albinism. Uh, that also, I think, should be pointed out. We've had albino affairs as a weekly segment uh, off and on for a good five, six years. Most of the time, I do not do any deliberate searching for anything related to albinism. It will just be in my general looking at the news. There will be some strange report. Albino fawn discovered on the road. And that's exactly what happened this week. Randomly, white man. My gosh. Uh, and just listening to the way that they talked. It's so special. And, oh, my goodness. And they said uh, uh, comparing fair skinned people to the albino fair skinned people having a difficult time with the heat and sun. Again, we've long talked about this fascination. That also comes up in James Lowen's Sundown Towns, how sometimes they will even make an albino creature the mascot for their all-white town. That is fascinating in the system of white supremacy. Dr. Welsing has a segment where she talked about that uh, back on the program. Uh, and and that is why I and Mr. Fuller recommend not using the word fair to describe someone's uh, skin. Uh, if you're going to use the word fair to describe someone as having pale skin and then use the same term to describe justice, that's suggesting that the people, the only people who are deserving of correct treatment, justice, are white, fair. And cor- or so again, the thinking, the words that support white supremacy, racism. Uh, when they had <clears throat> the segment on the Young Turks, on the officer who was sentenced for shooting the white woman, they had a victim of racism. Uh, she was presenting and she said that she didn't want to do the Bill Cosby Stanford rapist thing. This is the compensatory uh, call-in. That would be a metaphor. I'm not quite sure what that is. I'm not quite sure what that means in terms of, I just, it just, again, metaphor. Sometimes they can be just confusing in terms of people might not really understand what you mean with the comparison that's being made. any, I, I generally pay attention when I hear Bill Cosby's name being invoked for any reason. Uh, it seemed as though she was suggesting that she didn't want to say that, you know, this black male should be exonerated, uh, but she wanted justice to be enacted uh, correctly in all situations, which I can agree with, even though it seems that that's flagrantly not the case in a system of racism, white supremacy and Bill Cosby. I'm Yeah. <laughs> Bill Cosby. Uh, Let's see. The young non-white student in Texas who was speaking at her high school graduation and they cut her microphone when she went to mention uh, Tamir Rice and Trayvon Martin. And she called them victims. I thought that was important. They said, I believe she reported that she said their names. Just don't say their names. But saying their names and refer- referencing them as victims was enough to get the microphone turned off. She said that they told her, you're not in a position of power. I thought that was critically important because I think I've been saying for about a decade that 
the word privilege is not accurate. They didn't say, hey, young lady, you are not in a position of privilege. Don't you go out there and mention those Negroes names. They didn't say that. They said you're not in a position of power. And then they had the power to cut her microphone. That's not privilege. That is power. Terms are important. They understood that. That's why they turned off the microphone. Uh, the use of the term minority terms are important. This is the compensatory call in. They refer to or this young lady victim, she referred to her high school as majority minority. Then they referred to Mark Stevens, the suspected race soldier uh, who assaulted Kyle Lowry. They referred to him as the minority owner. Use of the term minority can be very confusing in the system of racism, white supremacy. Use that word with caution. Uh, this broadcast, we ask that you not use metaphors. Bill Cosby, Stanford rapist thing, that would be one. If we not use metaphors, uh, that would be extremely helpful. Uh, racists, they skillfully will use metaphors, similes, analogies uh, to produce confusion. Frequently, they will take two separate concepts uh, and contrast them, compare them and say that they are equal, absolutely identical. And often that is not the case at all. Uh, we've been exposed to this misconduct for years, myself included, uh, and many victims of racism. We are still learning, uh, meaning sometimes we do not have logic to articulate our views. Uh, as such, we will substitute and use a metaphor. Frequently, these metaphors produce more confusion. Uh, sometimes we need to just take uh, more time to think to develop our thoughts or to get the logic to articulate our views. That is always acceptable for this broadcast. If we could not use metaphors, that would be super appreciated. I will prompt about that. If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, views, if you have questions, that would be great. Uh, make sure everybody gets at least one opportunity to share. If we have any listeners who are in the Atlanta or Detroit area, want to get my question in that came up from the book club. If you live, you don't have to still be a resident there, but if you uh, have lived, especially if you worked in the Atlanta, Detroit area, would be grand to hear from you. The number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate first few folks who dialed in if you have a hand up commentary to share line should be open proceed Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings. Uh, uh, I would first uh, speak on the uh, 
the uh, NBA incident. Uh, to be honest uh, with the uh, with the listeners, uh, I it's been a long time since I was actually a uh, uh, athlete. Uh, football doesn't present as much opportunities to be that close to the to the audience and uh, uh, so you don't get that kind of uh, opportunity to have those type of confrontations as often although it does happen I've mentioned about how something similar happened uh, this past football season where a uh, NFL football player for the Kansas City Chiefs actually got spit in his face. Uh, but uh, I would say, uh, honestly, I probably would have uh, taken the opportunity to punch that white male in the face, uh, which probably wouldn't have been the best uh, option. Uh, I would say the best option uh, was taken by the uh, non-white black male uh, at the time. I'm kind of surprised of his ability to restrain himself uh, in itself because uh, athletes are uh, rather uh, emotional during a game, but then again, I'm, I'll, I'll say I'm not so, so much surprised because also uh, normally with champion-level athletes, athletes that actually get two championships uh, and, uh, and are, have been successful through their careers as such, they are normally are the type who are, have emotions, but they're able to control it. So I, I wouldn't say I'm surprised, but I do understand that not all of them are like that and I probably would have been in that particular uh, situation whereas I would have not only punched him in the face, but somewhere where it would perhaps create a permanent injury with him and suffer the consequences. But nevertheless, uh, except for not filing a police report, which still is possible for him to do, uh, I think he did the, uh, would have been doing the best thing. Uh, I like your... Uh, your uh, warnings and reports on on drinking, on what to what type of liquid substances that non-white people should put into their mouths, uh, and and I know and I understand and I figure that you also would also uh, encourage the idea also to watch uh, the chemical that is called alcohol uh, and to putting that down your mouth. Uh, because of the devastating possibilities that take place from doing that and then getting into a motor vehicle and driving. Uh, down here in South Florida, a memorial was, uh, had just taken place with the three black males, ages, uh, I think it was 13, 15, and 18, something like that. All three of them were future uh, college students. Uh, they would have been the first in their families to do so. 
and they were struck down uh, all in one swipe uh, by a, unfortunately, well, I mean, to a case that doesn't make a difference, but nevertheless, it happened to have been a non-white black female uh, who was uh, inebriated uh, on alcohol, and she had been prior to a numerous amount of times a, a, a very vast record of driving uh, drunk, uh, and she struck uh, the three uh, black males and killed killed them uh, on that on that very same scene uh, uh, one morning about uh, a week ago. Uh, so that's you know just additional uh additional uh understanding on be watchful about uh what you put in your mouth and the consequences of what can take place um, dcs program uh had another session uh this morning from 9 a.m to 4 p.m uh it is so gratifying in my opinion to just be in the company of younger uh black people who are called children uh because of their uh ability to to uh be uh flexible in their understanding to be acceptance of wanting to listen to someone like me uh and they have a lot of patience they have a lot of patience uh i would say uh a quote-unquote mentoring program is this is a necessity for more than just uh non-white black people who are uh, 18 years old or 17 years old or younger it is a necessity that non-white black people of all ages under the global system of racism white supremacy uh, have some sort of setting where they can converse with one another and share and exchange views and understandings and how to better improve themselves you speak a lot about uh, healthy eating and yoga that certainly is something that that so-called quote-unquote non-white black grown-ups need to be uh, uh, connected with on a uh, constant basis a lot of times when we're not on these stressful sites that is called employment we spend a lot of time too much time sitting in front of the television whereas we can be occupying ourselves on saturdays <laughs> from nine to four in a lot of cases uh basically doing something similar as far as that concern uh uh earlier that morning we uh we have now a uh, martial arts instructor uh, that comes in and basically uh, teaches uh, the boys from the standpoint of primarily of uh, disciplined behavior, uh, how to just how to stand still for a while without a whole lot of unnecessary movement uh, uh, and different other exercises and discipline and self-control. Uh, is where he's at right now as far as his instructions. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so everything is going uh, functional. Uh, 
with the program itself, and just the just the the mere fact that I'm able to to uh, be allowed to be in uh, those young people's presence is it, it, I can't. It's hard for me to explain it on on how much I I appreciate the 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 uh, the opportunity to be in to be in their company, and so. Uh, that's all I have to say. I don't want to just keep going over this over and over again. And, and thank, thank everybody for listening. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Certainly, I always appreciate reminders about uh, not consuming alcohol, drinking more water. Uh, reading is more important than watching television. Really just being mindful about how we invest our time. I think if there is a system of white supremacy, uh, how much time should be invested in television watching? Just saying. Uh, Speaking of television watching, there is one thing I wanted to make sure I said this week. Last week, I played an audio segment, uh, Ava DuVernay's new Netflix special on the Central Park Five. It's a uh, what they call a docudrama dramatization of the uh, unjust uh, conviction of these young non-white children uh, as rapists uh, back in the 1980s. And I said that, you know, that's that's a whole genre, this type of thing, having films and television programs that are centered on the death of black people, death and suffering uh, of black people to just make that a form of entertainment. Uh, And I said, I don't you know, I'm not. I'm not sure this is something that I can be enthusiastic about. Uh, And so then this week uh, they report that the former prosecutor Linda Fairstein, almost thought they said fair skin, uh, that she got dropped from her publisher uh, and she had, she resigned from her alma mater. I said, well, hey, if the result of this film is a suspected racist, has some difficulties, uh, as Mr. Fuller has said, the price of doing business uh, goes up, has become more costly. It maybe is causing uh, Miss Fairstein some difficulties. Well, then maybe that is a constructive result uh, of this project, we'll have to say. Now, even with that, I could only be so enthusiastic. I mean, this is 30 years after all of this is done, unless I'm misinformed. She had already stepped down as prosecutor. Uh, so it's not like, you know, this messed up her uh, career. Or anything she's and she looks older she looks like you know she's pretty close to the end of her time on the planet uh she's not being criminally charged uh with anything so this you know is a couple days of unfavorable press clippings but i don't know if it's anything that substantial but that said that is something that is that is noteworthy i could see where people i could see a counter racist logic to people saying that alone is worthwhile Excellent work, Miss DuVernay. I could see the logic in that. If anyone saw the project, if you think it's constructive, feel free to comment. Uh, others who dialed in with a hand up, if you have uh, comments, questions, observations, star six one, proceed. See why folks are, I guess, waiting to make sure they 
get their thoughts, questions in. Uh, again, the yoga retreat, feel free to drop an email if you have questions uh, or need additional details. There are pictures uh, available on the blog. I'm trying to think uh, about potential uh, problems uh, and making sure that we uh, correct or make improvements from the first time around, refining as we proceed uh, each time around. Uh, so once I have finals and know that we're proceeding moving forward, I'll be able to go through and get some of the details. I'll send out a questionnaire, kind of email to everyone to give out more details and maybe even make some uh, inquiries uh, so that hopefully we will have the best experience possible while hanging out in California. Uh, let's see. Comments while folks get their thoughts or questions together. Let's see. The segment on Brazil, I am going to try to get our guest. Uh, we actually had several guests uh, on Brazil uh, about the numbers of killings. Uh, and particularly the racism. It's a lot of black people. Uh, they have the highest population of black here and black people in this hemisphere, unless I've been misinformed. Uh, that's one that I definitely want to make sure I'm following up on. I feel like I've been neglectful of uh, doing more work of what's happening in Brazil. Brazil and pollution. Pollution was mentioned uh, in James Lowen's uh, Sundown Towns this week specifically. Uh, and talking about the dumpsters, all of the pollutants being specifically located in black areas. Uh, and that's another area where I'd said, man, there are direct books that I have right here in my library now where uh, that's something that I wanted to make sure that we did some programs on. So hopefully this summer, that'll be two areas uh, we'll be able to explore. Brazil getting an update uh, in white supremacy racism and how it's functioning there. Uh, and then the pollution mega one. Uh, if there are listeners in the Seattle area, that documentary film is supposed to be airing tomorrow at the Langston Hughes Center. I was looking at information today. Uh, I just saw that report yesterday. I was looking at information uh, really yesterday and today uh, about the screening and contemplating going. I've been to the Langston Hughes Center before. Uh, if there are folks in the Seattle area might be interested in doing counter-racist work, asking a question or two. I think that is going down tomorrow. Uh, I think there is a fee. It's not exactly uh, free to the public. Uh, if you think it would be worth your time and energy to check out, let me know. I have done a few counter-racist field trips uh, in the area with victims of racism before. Uh, so if you would be interested, Sunday afternoon, I think it's a 2 p.m., uh, airing for the film. Let me know if you would be interested. I might be willing to go. I was thinking I might be in the area anyway. So until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. Other folks who dialed in folks still spectating, waiting to share folks that had hands up or had their thoughts together. see hands. Folks are not sure if they're in a noisy environment. I reckon they'll get it together once they are able to speak. Can I be heard? 
there's one of them. Uh, greetings, Thomas in New York. Greetings, Gus. Good evening. How are you? Right poorly, I know. <laughs> I got you. Um, man, great, great show so far. Um, um, peace to the firefighter. Um, I have a few things to say. Greetings. Um, a greeting, sir. Um, found out today from my daughter. Um, it's no longer called drug abuse. It's officially now called substance misuse. And um, I don't see how this is misuse. I mean, you know, you can't misuse crap. I mean, you can't misuse heavily. What other use does it have other than to get you high? I didn't, but, um, you know, now that white people are on it, that's how it goes. Um, black doctors, uh, I agree with you. I have it in here. It could be dangerous. could play against us. Um, especially if the doctors are told to do something wrong by the white supremacists. And um, that's been a notorious um, part of the history of black Tuskegee. I mean, you have a lot of situations where there were black people um, directly who the black people believed in that were working against them and, uh, you know, probably confused or didn't know could be. Um, I saw the albino affairs this week too. <laughs> I printed it out. Um, but with the, the clip you played, man, she sounded like she wanted to breastfeed the deer herself. Um, I was waiting for her to say she um, put it in his mouth. Um, the high school is supposed to foster a sense of civic and activism, a sense of pride in community. And the young girl can't say Trayvon Martin. Um, I think that that pretty much shows what it really means if you're not white. Um, Cleveland, Tamir Rice, um, I believe the report said she had 170-something. It was so high, just say 180,000 names on the petition. Cleveland has a population of just under 185,000 people. So she had about 45% of the city sign this petition. Um, I think that if he gets his, um, he keeps his job, I mean, that's, um, out goes democracy, as they would say. Um, I mean, it seems like a very high percentage of the city doesn't want this man. You can't get 45% of the city of, with 385,000 people without getting a large amount of white people to also sign that petition. Um, Kyle Lowry, push, remember, earlier this year of us, um, Russell Westbrook pushed by a little white supremacist. At another game, he was called racial slurs, told to get on his knees. Um, here we go, Kyle Lowry, pushed by a fan who's not a fan, a part owner of the team. Um, I would think that as part owner of the team, you would want the players on your team not to die for the ball into the crowd and a fan tries to push them. Um, this could have turned and, um, this could have turned into a uh, Ron Artest. I mean, um, if you remember Stephen Jackson, Ron Artest, uh, in Toronto, or is this, no, Detroit, jumped into the crowd, um, well doing the fans, um, uh, turned into a media, um, travesty for the NBA, a PR nightmare. Um, and, um, you know, they suspended for the whole season. 
lost a lot of money in endorsements. I mean, um, this guy would have been justified, once again, a fan stepping over the boundaries of what you would think they could do. But this is a part owner. He should immediately be uh, forced out of the NBA. Um, now, um, I would have, if I was Kyle Lowry, I know um, <laughs> the firefighter had his chance. I would have made the referees have to make a decision. I'm not playing. I'm in the game. I'm not playing. So you're going to have to either kick me out the game or you're going to have to kick him out the arena. And uh, you can go to your tapes. Y'all go to that about 20 times a game. Watch what happened. And I didn't push him back. I didn't hit him back. I'm not playing them. So I would have put that decision in the hands of the referee. It would have really, uh, I think, um, put it back into the hands of the white supremacists. Let's see what they would have done in that situation. I see LeBron James um, um, is calling for this man to be fired as well. Um, they did a report on LA's Los Angeles homelessness, which has jumped up to, um, I believe, somewhere close to 50,000 people. Um, a couple of years ago, if not last year, the UN went to Skirball and they did a report and over 40% of these people were listed as African-American. Um, and they had a part of the area, they said that they were there two years earlier in the same exact trash, was in the same exact place. So it was a two years. In fact, the city confirmed that they hadn't cleaned Skirvo in two years and rats and all types of things. Um, terrible um, to see. Um, but, um, I mean, it's a system of white supremacy. What do you expect um, to see black people living in tents? Uh, I mean, they, they put out a bunch of pictures in the report that CNN did. And um, if you could go back to the UN report, you could pretty much see the demographic of the people that's there. Um, the Central Park Five docu-series, I saw the series. Uh, I want to talk about um, the case, not the movie. Uh, however, um, am I running out of time, Gus? Did I talk later? Uh, I got confused watching the clock. I was trying to make a note of what I wanted to say. So, yeah, I guess just finish. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. Um, I was 12 when this happened. Uh, I remember having the sentiment at the time that they were guilty. Uh, I really feel bad about that. Um, but it was the propaganda, the news. Um, the courts made us feel like this was an open-shut case, as the cops called it. Um, that the kids admitted to the rape. Um, they admitted to the attempted murder. They admitted to committing various assaults and crimes before and after the rape. Um, so that's pretty much how I remembered it. Uh, when I look back, it angers me. Um, uh, I saw two or, two or three of these brothers in Harlem on 125th Street in um, about 2013, and they were promoting their documentary at the time that came out about them. And I watched the documentary, and um, I was so angry after watching it because I remember being that 12-year-old who thought they did it. And um, the documentary, I think, was more in detail than the movie. The movie was pretty good. I usually don't like her work, but that was pretty good. Um, this is what I realized from rehashing the events. Uh, one is, the, I think uh, the movie is being politicized due to Donald Trump being the president. 
Um, I really think that, personally think that if he wasn't the president, they wouldn't have made a movie. It wouldn't have mattered. The only thing that made this story relevant was that he put out that page that added in the paper um, as far as for white people's mindset. Um, and the second thing that stuck out to me that uh, I've been studying feminism. And um, feminism is written by the feminists to be a movie broken down into four waves. Uh, first wave being the woman's suffrage. Um, started back in the 1840s. They joined the abolitionist movement. Um, they used black men. Um, they didn't really care about the slavery, but they wanted black men to get equal rights, but then they could go to their white men and say, hey, I want the same rights you just gave that nigga. So um, it took them all the way until 1920 to get the vote, and then you get the second wave where they want to work. Um, so they create the birth control pill. You have a whole bunch of uh, things going on. You also have them packing themselves onto the civil rights movement. This is the 1960s. Um, and then um, you have the sex wars, and you get to the third shift. And the, this is where I got confused when I was studying it, because uh, third wave is supposed to be the women's empowerment. And they write the movement as it starts with the Anita Hill trial. And um, they were out, how white women were so outraged about Biden led all white male Senate committee to interrogate her, um, to interrogate this black female like she was a black female. I mean, that's pretty much what they did. And um, I just never felt like white women really cared about that, but this is how they say the movement stopped, started. So when I sat and watched this movie, I realized that the Central Five Park, five case was the start of that third wave of white feminism, women empowerment. Um, in 1989, Linda Fairstein and Elizabeth Lederer, two women, lead the attack on these five black men. Um, they knew that they broke the laws. They were minors. They didn't commit the crime. They had evidence that said someone else's firm was used. They had the parents not there. I mean, everything about it was done recklessly. Um, they even withheld evidence during the trial. Um, and still, um, they went ahead with this to show that white women had the power. And they put these five young black males in, under the, you know, in prison. Um, and I just thought that that was, um, you know, very important. Also, the white woman, who they say is the victim, Trisha Mille, uh, she was raped um, and brutally beaten. However, according to history, um, I just can't believe her. White women have had a notorious history of lying about black people raping her. She woke up at some point during the rape and scratched the rapist. Um, she had to realize it was one person there. I just don't believe her story where she lost her memory, but she could remember everything else that happened. I think that um, she just said, hey, punish her. Um, and based off of history, Gus, Emmett Till, I mean, we could blame so many people um, who did less. Um, and the last thing I want to say about this was she was, um, she was interviewed by Oprah, um, the victim, and she said that she was upset after the interview and another interview um, because Oprah did what she called victim blaming by asking her why was she in the park that evening. And, um, you know, I think it was a great question. Uh, and just for context, um, 1989, New York City was the murder capital, 1905 murders. Um, you know, the next year after that, 
1990, they got to the 2,245. That was that's all time record anywhere. So when you put that in context, why were you running around the park at 10 o'clock? Um, so um, the cases that these people did that they tried, they should be all looked at. Um, and I'm with my line, Gus. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, if anybody else, I guess if you saw the docudrama, if you thought it was constructive, uh, Ms. DuVernay, I do want to make sure I'm explicit. I never said I didn't think it was constructive, just said I, you know, not sure I can be too enthusiastic about these types of subjects. Uh, but if other folks have seen it, if you thought it was constructive, that sort of thing. Feel free, let us know, uh, star six one, if you have a uh, comment, question. Uh, one thing I did want to share uh, really quick before I nab our other callers. Uh, this week in Seattle, Seattle, they had a presentation. Uh, I was invited uh, by my prenatal yoga instructor. She is a white woman. Uh, it was a non-white speaker coming, though. That was why I was intrigued. Uh, she does these speaking engagements like on a regular basis uh, around the world, I'm told. I'd never or I'd heard of her from my prenatal uh, teacher instructor, but she is the first person who told me about her. Her name is uh, Ama, A-M-M-A. And she came to Seattle uh, this year weekend for Thursday and Friday. And she did like four presentations. Uh, and she, as I said, she's a non-white, non-black female. And she goes to different spots around the world trying to help individuals who have problems. Uh, she's, they had a report where she had done things on the continent and with different individuals who all look like non-white people to me uh, and trying to help them do various things, build schools or get an education Things that seem constructive. Uh, so I'm there and we're in Bellevue, right? This is like a suburb, really ritzy suburb that's like 10 minutes outside of Seattle. Very easy to get to. Uh, but I mean, wow, Seattle is already expensive. Bellevue is really expensive. So we're there uh, at the Hyatt Regency. And I mean, it was, I'm almost still having to like put words together to describe the situation. I'd never attended an event like this. So I just kind of walked around observing, uh, being confused uh, for the better part of two days, but I will have to share. Uh, it was, wow. I'm still trying to gather my words and thoughts to, uh, describe. There were not many black people there. I did not expect there to be a whole lot of black people, uh, present. It was fascinating. I'll have to gather my thoughts and share. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a uh, hand up commentary to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, Henry in Chicago. All right. Greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, <clears throat> the case of the Central Park Five, uh, it's, uh, it's not unique. Uh, there are probably a lot of cases uh, that, uh, entailed non-white, um, black men or boys being accused of rape and murder. Uh, there are basically two that come to mind and actually here in this area, uh, there was the case of the Dixmore five 
Uh, Dixmore is a uh, suburb of Chicago. Uh, it was a case where uh, five uh, young non-white black males were accused of uh, kidnapping and raping and murdering a uh, 14-year-old non-white uh, uh, black girl. Uh, these uh, men were charged with the rape and murder and were sentenced. However, DNA exonerated them. I think it was 20, uh, 2011 or 2012. However, what was interesting about that case, because uh, the, I guess it, uh, the investigation led to a guy who was already in prison, who they linked the DNA to uh, the victim. And what was interesting about that case was the prosecutor, uh, the state's attorney prosecutor at the time, Anita Alvarez, um, she was very reluctant to exonerate these men, even though they had DNA evidence, because uh, of the fact that she believed that the people that linked the DNA to the actual perpetrator might have been a, uh, a case of necrophilia where he might have found the body and had sex with it, which was absolutely ridiculous and absurd. But for those who uh, don't remember who Anita Alvarez is, she was the prosecutor or she was the state's attorney who uh, was part of the cover-up of the Laquan McDonald tapes that were hitting for a year uh, before they were released. So uh, Anita Alvarez, uh, suspected racist uh, and actually a state's attorney at the time. Uh, and then there was another case of the Fort Heights Four, another uh, incident of four young black uh, men who were accused of uh, killing a white couple from Homewood. Uh, and they were exonerated as well uh, after spending, you know, decades in prison. Uh, the report on the med the medical report, uh, I heard something that says, you know, and I think it's no surprise that the the life expectancy of uh, you know of of white people uh, out you know is more than uh, for for non-white, uh, especially black people. Uh, there was actually a report uh, this week. Uh, and it listed uh, <clears throat> it listed uh, two neighborhoods in Chicago here, uh, Streeterville and Inglewood. The life expectancy of Streeterville, which is predominantly white, uh, is 30 years more than Inglewood, which is predominantly black. So in Streeterville, uh, your life expectancy is up to 90 years. Inglewood, your life expectancy is you know, maybe 60 or so, or 50, maybe less than that. But uh, it was, uh, you know, it made me think about, think about that, uh, that particular report. Um, and, uh, and one more thing. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, if we have time, I'll, I'll get back to it, but I'll leave my life. Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Uh, and I think that is important to come, uh, to, recognize in the race soldiers it generally will not be one incident especially individuals that are in these powerful positions uh enforcement officials prosecutors uh major office holders uh it generally won't just be uh one case uh one thing that they were involved in in terms of practicing racism white supremacy their name generally will come up uh, multiple times with multiple uh, different infractions, violations. Uh, so I think that's always 
uh, helpful uh, to illustrate. Uh, let's see, other folks uh, who have come, I guess I'll give out the number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. One thing that I will say about being at the presentation this week, uh, white people are generally very codified, very efficient when they are serious about getting things done. It was remarkable to observe. That was part of why I wanted to be there, to just observe exactly what was happening because I'd never participated in anything like this before. It was amazing uh, in terms of just how codified they were about getting this together. And they do these, they've been doing these tours, I think, for like over 20 years, maybe even 30 years, I think. Uh, and so they bring their own dishes, they bring their own tables, and get it's amazing uh, just how codified things are. Uh, and I'm saying white people because even though it was a non-white speaker, they had a part of the presentation where they recognized uh, the organizers uh, of the event, which seemed like the what they call chief organizers. And all of these individuals seem to be like they would be classified as white. Not that I was surprised at all. Most of the people there were white. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if we've missed you totally, uh, if you have a hand up, proceed. Folks, I guess have. Oh. Uh, did I? Was that someone? You were kind of low if you were speaking. Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Oh, okay, that's much better. Yes, sir. Uh, this is Amon DC. I was uh, going to mention, um, I think two weeks ago, there was a conversation um, about. Um, one of the ladies was having problems with um, menstrual cramps, I think, and um, like some type of indigestion. Or um, So uh, the other thing I was going to quickly say about um, moving bubbles of air out of your body is twisting your body to like an extremity, uh, twisting uh, your shoulders the opposite direction of your hips. But um, it's, a, it's a similar motion that you would wring out a rag to, to twist it. And, um, and, this, uh, and then you can move your knees and, you know, the range of motion that that, that has. But um, when, you, when you do that twist and then hold it, every, everything, all the... Um, motions you need to do, you kind of, you hold it for um, a while. But if you do that twist, you'll have the bowel movement um, or, and you'll expel um, whatever gas you have. Um, and also, like, there's, uh, 
the balls that people use to exercise on, those real big balls that uh, people will like lay on and be um, laying backwards on or laying on their back, that's good to um, to bend um, backwards. Um, so at the at the pelvis, using that as a um, a leverage point. Uh, so if you don't have a one of those exercise balls, another thing you could do is just um, maybe on the arm of your couch or whatever to lay um, laid back and uh, if I'm making sense and bend backwards and uh, hold that position. Eventually, the air bubbles can move out of, out of your system. Um, my flight to uh, this part of the world, um, I'm still in Africa. Uh, before I came to Ghana, um, I made my way to Morocco, um, and the Arabs were uh, unpleasant. But um, I made my way to Morocco. On my way to Morocco, before I got to the coast, I'm on the ocean, and there's chemtrail planes flying over the ocean, over the open ocean. Um, when I get to the coast, there's chemtrail planes on the coast. When I, when I get on the continent, I didn't see the chemtrail planes again, you know, but I've... Um, Anyway, but, but my point was is that they were there, and they were there in North Africa. Reason being, because there's also albinos there in North Africa, these ice albinos, these white people, and these types of Arabs. Anyway, heat. It's getting hot. It's going to continue to get hot. White people, ice albinos, cannot withstand heat, fire, the sun. They can't withstand it. Um, and then, uh, then back to explaining what's happening to black people in America. When I explained it to uh, people, black uh, Africans um, that I've spoken to, when I explained it to them. They look at me and they tell me that I'm not telling the truth. They they start laughing after after a while. So man, this guy is ridiculous. I know that's what they're thinking, and. <laughs> <clears throat> it's ridiculous that they think it's ridiculous, but um, whatever. Um, it's it's very difficult to explain what's happening to me, my family, my people on my continent and all over the world. And also, I wanted to say once again, America belongs only to the black people in America only the black Americans. There's only one type of American. There's only black Americans. Everybody else is not an American. All the people there that are not black Americans are invaders. Uh, thank you. Much obliged to M. Han DC. Uh, safe travels. Uh, he was with us at the yoga retreat in Virginia. Good to hear from you. I didn't recognize your uh, voice at first. Um, Thank you for calling in all the way across the globe. Uh, and that is important. Uh, the report that he gave in terms of the difficulty of talking about racism, white supremacy and explaining what is happening on the planet. 
uh, and the resistance, the difficulty that he is encountering, that is not a surprise. Uh, and if anything, that is just further evidence uh, of how difficult this problem is to resolve uh, and how successful racists have been worldwide, that that seems to be pretty typical of the response that you get anywhere on the planet uh, when talking to non-white people. Not all the time, but certainly that is very, very common where it is extremely difficult uh, to talk to other victims of racism, non-white people uh, about, hey, what is the biggest problem on this planet right now that is impacting the both of us? Racism. And look, they, exactly as he said, they look like, what are you talking about, man? Get out of here. <laughs> like, maybe they don't say it in English. Maybe they say it in a different language or what have you. But I mean, that's whew, that is the enormity of the problem. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, commentary to share, questions, observations, uh, star six one. Uh, any folks that we missed, uh, certainly proceed. While we're waiting for folks to other folks to get maybe get to a spot where they can uh, chat and what have you. Uh, Thomas in New York, if you are still with us in a spot where you're able to speak, I did have a quick question. If you might not be in an area where he can speak, if not, I can perhaps if you have time before we go off the air. I'm here. Oh, okay. Uh, the victim of racism who was just sentenced, the enforcement official, non-white male, uh, so-called immigrant. He was sentenced uh, for shooting the white woman. Um, would he be classified as white according to some of the logic that you shared before because of him being an enforcement official? Um, I would need to see a picture of him. I don't know. I haven't, I wasn't familiar with that case, but. Oh, okay. Okay. I think he is classified as black, but um, we'll see if we can get a, a photo. I'll post it on like the Facebook group so you can see exactly what he looks like. Well, um, what do you think about the white supremacist officer who was convicted of not going into the school? I thought he was charged. I didn't think, was he convicted or was he just uh, charged? Charged, my mistake. Okay. Um, this is the Parkland shooting for folks that are listening down in uh, Florida. Uh, I thought that was important. Uh, I almost uh, had an audio clip about that as well. Can't play everything. Uh, but I thought that was important, uh, them saying that uh, he was incorrect for not acting, not confronting uh, this shooter, uh, because I feel that whites display that sort of inaction with regards to racism, white supremacy, all the time and it's never looked at as oh you should have done something it was your duty to do something about this to intercede uh, and I did think that that was important saying that this white man had a duty to intercede and to stop this attack and he didn't sue though this uh, enforcement official uh, had a duty to attack and didn't do so and I think he's facing I think it's 11 uh, different counts it's not even just one charge uh, against him I thought it was yeah extremely important Yeah, I thought so too. And I said, um, I, if it was um, 
if the report came over the mic, uh, microphone that a bunch of black kids was in the school shooting the school up, I think he would have went in there. I just, I don't know. But uh, that was my only question for you guys. Mm-hmm. I'll say uh, another quick one as well. Uh, folks are kind of getting, they get to a quiet area or whatever. They just need some moments to get their notes together. Uh, here in the Seattle area, there were a group of uh, hikers, suspected racists. I suspect these are white people. Uh, they were climbing Mount Rainer, which is a popular activity. Do the hiking and all that. REI headquarters is here in Seattle. So they're hiking and they got stuck uh, up there and they had to send a rescue helicopter up to get them. And they had a big story. You can go to the uh, Seattle Times and you can read it. They had a big story. They got some of them down. The photographs that they showed the guy, he looks like he'd be a suspect, a suspected racist, a white guy. And they got him down. He's talking about, you know, it was harrowing. And, oh, my gosh. <laughs> this. And I spoke with Mr. Fuller. This was maybe a couple years back. And he said that white people, they complained that if they're if they gave up racism, sometimes they'll say that they would lose out on a lot. You know, it'd be really expensive to do away with racism, do the repairs of white supremacy, racism, how they've mauled and molested non-white people, black people worldwide. And he says, you know, whites, they waste a lot of money worldwide on a lot of things. Uh, And he said, you know, wars going around shooting and killing people. They just make up, you know, phony wars and waste billions and trillions of dollars on that. And sometimes they'll say so uh, in the process. Uh, And he said, Christopher Reeves, uh, formerly Superman, out riding a horse and ended up breaking his back and having to pay money for somebody to take care of him for the rest of his life. Paraplegic, as they say, that that costs a lot of money for private nursing care and all those health care bills. And even if he hadn't got her just for the, the stable fees, didn't they have the Belmont sticks today? All of that, all of the money uh, that goes into that, even their athletic contests, the finals and things that have a billionaire just to shove and practice racism, all of the money that goes into that, how much confetti do they spend and flowers and champagne and just nonsense. They waste tons of resources. That's what I thought of when I saw that report this week stranded up on Mount Rainer. Some things that are totally unnecessary, given all the things that should be a priority. People that don't have enough food, don't have clean water, don't have adequate housing, all of the problems. Whites with their opioid problem, right? All the things that are problems. We have to get a helicopter. All of this money to go up to Mount Rainier to get stranded whites. Only in a system of racism, white supremacy. But that sort of thing is exhibited all the time. Like flagrant waste. uh, Flagrant just expenditure of time, energy, and resources on things that are totally useless and unnecessary, just flaunting the worthlessness of black life, non-white people in general. Uh, other folks have comments or folks spectating? Folks, this still I would have- say, Gus, um, uh, the, 20, the 26 to $27 trillion debt that the United States owes, I would say they spent at least $20 trillion of those dollars 
to keep us in the situation that we're in uh, over the course of the last uh, however many years. Because um, that's their number one expense. Think of how much money they waste every year on prison, um, on um, social services that they could very easily um, put people in a very good position. But to to keep us in this situation uh, and to keep jobs for them, to keep us, you know, work in all these offices and get all these contracts. I mean, just think of how much money they spend on that. Um, uh, and like it's out, $355,000 a year to house one juvenile prison. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. Um, that's most of the debt. Khalif Browder, that right there, locking up black people over nonsense. Dr. Welsing, I think, had even talked about that. The number of black people that get locked up for nonsense. Wasting time, energy, resources that easily could be, you know, invested in lots of other things. They could have 5G for everybody with all the time and money and resources that you'd wasted. Uh, you know, and again, white people are not ignorant about this. I can't amplify that enough. This is not a problem of them being misinformed. This is what they want. That's the conclusion Mr. Fuller said that he came to painfully. It wasn't like he was bragging and jumping up and down. It was, man, this is, you know, tragic. Uh, But, hey, I mean, you have to face reality as is. Uh, And he said that was his conclusion. This is what they want. They like it. Embarrass you. Humiliate you. Yes, ride around and waste food in front of you you while you are starving. This is what they want. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, Mr. James Lowen, in his text, he did make a suggestion that companies are reluctant to move to, uh, to predominantly white towns, at least some of them, because it might be difficult to find their black managers housing in predominantly white towns that would be hostile to selling a house or renting property to Negroes. Uh, And I said, wow, because he didn't have uh, evidence. He had a footnote, but it was just like a conversation that he had with a person, a random individual. And I said, wow, I would, you know, I need more substantial evidence to corroborate that point. Do we have any folks that are listening in uh, where you have worked at a company organization they were going to relocate maybe or were thinking about relocating and you heard commentary that oh wait a minute well we we were looking at one such spot but we you know we had to give some second thoughts because they are uh, uh pretty much all white town and they are a little hostile to the negroes and carl is doing great work for us we want to make sure that he and his family are taking you know taking care of so I don't know if we're going to move. Has that been anybody's experience? We have anybody who's in management experience, companies relocated. I would definitely appreciate hearing that. Uh, That one did not exactly ring or that one uh, seemed suspicious. There was not enough evidence to support such a claim. uh, So I would definitely be eager in hearing if anyone has detailed personal experience with that regard. Uh, We miss anybody. Other folks have a hand up. Soon, folks are 
still speculating. I thought we had still missed some hands or so uh, from folks while we were waiting here. A little confusing. I hope folks are not uh, doing too much spectating. I will say that that is uh, significant, uh, getting the information about racism, counter-racism, share. Even if it's information about constructive eating habits, man, not that you need to preach, not that you need to go out and pluck or not that you need to go out and harass or aggravate anyone as they are consuming a meal, no matter how toxic it may be. Uh, but definitely try as you can uh, to share, uh, encourage, especially if you have people that you uh, care about, uh, to encourage them to develop uh, more mindful eating habits, mindful being just paying attention. Uh, the system of racism, white, su uh, white supremacy encourages uh, a lot of mindless eating, uh, not paying attention uh, to what it is, not paying attention to the ingredients uh, in the product, uh, not paying attention to how this makes me feel, uh, not paying attention to the impact that eat consuming this product may have on my skin or my waistline or my teeth, uh, just to not be mindful uh, about things that we are consuming. Uh, just making an effort to be more mindful uh, about things that we put in our mouth. Uh, it's hugely important. Just that alone can be life changing uh, for a lot of people. Again, you don't need to harass. You don't need to disrupt people while they uh, are eating. I have found that that's not very helpful. Well, that's one that you definitely can do a lot by just setting a good example, uh, meaning you yourself model eating correctly getting that exercise drinking your water that that can be extremely helpful especially when people see i think black african was talking about how people can see uh you start eating a little better start being more paying more attention to the things that you eat getting your exercise people will see changes how you walk changes your posture a little bit more black self-respect in your stance make sure that something that's something that you share with other victims of racism. I think that can, will be very helpful uh, towards solving this problem permanently. Don't just be a spectator uh, with information about counter-racism. Uh, get out, share with other victims of racism at minimum, you know, immediate family members and what have you. Uh, share information uh, and trying to get better. That's why I said the report that we got from Imhan DC, uh, all of us uh, constantly looking for ways to get better uh, at disseminating counter-racist information to other victims of racism, white supremacy. We obviously have a lot of room for improvement. Uh, other folks uh, dialed in? We missed anybody? Folks have thoughts they wanted to share before we get ready to wrap things up? Hey Gus, I, I had a couple more things to say at this time. Uh, proceed, Thomas in New York. Okay, um, a few things I saw this week was um, there was a Chinese woman in New York um, who was renting out her apartment for Airbnb, um, and a black group of black males went to stay there, and um, she called one of them a monkey, and um, picked them out in the middle of the night, um, told the police she didn't feel safe with black males staying in her house. Um, however, she made a couple of racist comments and they taped it, put it on um, social media. And um, Airbnb supposedly has taken this Chinese woman 
um, off of their list of people that can um, access their site. I don't think that they would have done the same thing to a white woman who said she felt unsafe with four black males um, staying at her house. Um, another story this week was a young man. He He's not black, but he's not white. Um, someone would call him probably Spanish-speaking. Um, he put in jail because he refused to give up his cell phone password to police. Um, his story, um, you say Saladi will be back. He was um, caught smoking marijuana in his car, pulled over by the police. Uh, when they searched his person, he had two valves of cannabis oil, which is illegal in um, Florida. Um, Tampa, this happened in. And um, as um, they searched the car, they found a gun in the glove compartment, but it was legal, lawful. Um, so they arrested him. And um, while they uh, had him handcuffed, his phone rang, and it was like, you could read the text as it popped off, you know, said, did you get that, or something like that. So they asked him to unlock his phone. He refused. They put him in jail, um, let him go. He was given a misdemeanor. Um, four days later, the police come to his house and with a warrant from a judge asking him to unlock his phone. He refused. Uh, they bring him before the judge. The judge asked him. He refused. She puts holds him in contempt of court, and um, he stayed in jail for 44 days. And um, got the um, the charges were all dropped after 44 days. But um, kudos to him for refusing. But um, this is the next step they're going. Um, Alabama local government seizes countless kids based off a falsified drug test result. A white woman testing people for drug tests, taking their kids. Not even running the scan under the micro under the computer. Computer, um, mostly um, all the black people that went through there, their kids were taking. Um, she didn't test them at all. Um, she just took the money from the government for doing it. Uh, over millions of dollars over the years until she did it to a white woman who went to the doctor who was put there, and he said, "I never tested this specimen," and that's how the whole thing got uncovered. Um, so all these years, for uh, I think it's. Years in the article, they've been taking black people's kids um, for falsified drug tests. And um, Red in Ohio says, I think it was Red, um, I want her to look up an article. Dolphur, new project is investing millions in brain machine interfaces, also known as BMIs, uh, brain machine interface. So you to interface your brain directly to the internet. Um, and uh, I'll meet my line. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, again, I think I and others on the broadcast have mentioned before about not uh, consenting to searches without a warrant. Searches of your person, your property, your vehicle, your residence, because that'll be suggested often, sometimes even from other victims of racism, that... You know, if enforcement officials uh, stop you, oh, well, let me just, you know, let me let me take a quick look and you'll be on your way. Do not do it. Uh, that can have devastating consequences. Uh, in this case, uh, the victim that you mentioned, uh, I think you said even they they got the warrant and he still refused and they held him in custody for 45 days, which can present a whole lot of other uh, problems. And then they still they ultimately dropped all the charges. But uh, that's going to be a whole or uh, that's already developing in what they, they call a new frontier 
uh, of consent and privacy, the mobile devices and all of that and having to unlock that material. Wow. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, did we miss anybody? Folks that we've not heard from? May I have you heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, good evening. Greetings to the callers. Good evening, Gus. Uh, hope everybody's having a constructive evening. Um, if you would indulge me, I want to share um, uh, part of my journal from a couple of days ago. And I wanted to, to get everybody's view on how I'm, if I um, reacted correctly or if there's any improvements that I can make in my reactions. So um, um, this is from the 26th of May. Uh, reviewing a suspected incident of racing white supremacy practice on me earlier today. Standing on the street near the entrance of a subway station, I hear a part of a woman's conversation. I ascertain, I ascertain she's looking for confirmation of directions she's been given. Immediately, I prepare myself for interaction, and as predicted, the woman I suspect would be classified as white approaches me and states, can I ask you a question? You're just standing here. You should expect questions. Now, I am instinctively complied, but a secondary, a secondary thought occurs to me, so I'm obliged to answer your questions and be assistant to you because you're a white person. Her first question was confirmation that she could access the subway line to reach her destination. I reply, yes. Now she asks a follow-up question to which I reply, I couldn't tell you. She nods and walks away. What I thought of doing was to stop and ask, the question which I thought would be a more accurate and proper response, but I concluded not to continue my interaction with the swine if I recall the acronym correctly. I did think about, I did think how easy we fall back into conditioned behaviors when interacting with racist suspects. Uh, basically, I would appreciate anybody's views about how I could better be prepared for things like that, and I'll leave my line. Thank you. Much obliged, sir. Uh, other folks can certainly give their thoughts. Uh, I think um, all of us are still learning. So each of those interactions kind of gives you an opportunity to refine and adjust your code uh, so that it'll work for you, work best for you. Uh, I think in those type of situations, when you're out in public and this is not like a planned interaction, like this is not a white person that you know in a job setting or another circumstance where you know this individual and you're going to be around them. So you kind of know their tendencies and, and what to expect, uh, where it's just some random individual talking to you. I think in those situations, I try to remind myself that sometimes the best response is no response. Uh, when you're out in public uh, and it's someone classified as white, starts talking to you or asks you a question, you're not obligated to respond. Uh, if it's an enforcement official, that's a different situation. But if it's uh, a race soldier without a badge, might not have to say anything. And sometimes uh, that's the best response. That's frequently, that's the response that I employ. Uh, I found that that's one of the ways that whites can waste a lot of our time is to get us into these uh, exchanges uh, where this was not our plan to go out and talk to this white person or, you know, to talk to them in a pleasant, wonderful manner or to have some sort of confrontation about racism. None of that was on our plan. We were out to do something else and they initiated this. So I think frequently in those situations, I just encourage uh, to say nothing, be alert, you know, to see if they escalate or anything else happens. But don't feel like you have to say anything or respond at all. Uh, 
other folks uh, want to respond to this situation, I guess, and how he handled it? Uh, if other folks have a code on how they handle these type of public incidents? If any white person asks me for direction in the street or the subway, I just say I don't know. And I keep it moving. But, you know, that's it. That's the end of my conversation. I don't know. Hmm. Definitely don't feel obligated to answer a white person's question. Uh, I wouldn't care what it is. Uh, do you know where 8th Street is? Which aisle is the ketchup on? Is there a, a grocery store two blocks down? Do not feel obligated to answer uh, any of those questions when you're out and about. I know for myself as a black male here in Seattle, the one that I would get frequently is, uh, do you know where I can get some drugs? In fact, that's one that I'll still get frequently. Uh, would you mind? Because they have dispensaries. It's, you know, cannabis is legal here. So, hey, brother. Uh, would you mind going into the dispensary for me? Brother, would you mind buying me some liquor at the store? That'll be a frequent one. Uh, I don't respond at all. Not a nod, not a wave. I don't even break stride. Uh, Same here. Also, the advent of white people asking for money. Rejection. Uh, in, in South Florida, uh, what is making the news also is the uh, second trial of the uh, North Miami enforcement official who shot the mental health uh, 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 employee. Uh, uh, it still haven't. They still haven't gotten a uh, a uh, uh, clear uh, decision yet on his, uh, I believe, manslaughter trial. The first. The first. Uh, instance went to a uh, mistrial, I think it's called, when it's kind of like a tide in the vote out of the jury. Uh, and uh, this is be actually the second uh, uh, court appearance. Uh, as one would look at a picture of this enforcement official, I would state that he does not qualify as a white person. Uh, that uh, who stated that he was aiming for the mental health patient. And in turn, instead of hitting the mental health patient who was armed with what he thought was a firearm, he hit the non-white black male who was the uh, mental health em employer, employee, sorry. Uh, yeah, that that is uh, one of the top things that's going on down here now as far as making a decision on that. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, just really quick on the, uh, the caller's question. One of the reasons that I do suggest uh, 
that you don't have to say anything at all is just because sometimes in the system of uh, racism, things can escalate so quickly, uh, especially when you're out in public, because there's so many variables. You don't know the individual. You don't know if there are other individuals involved and that sort of thing. You don't know if they are armed. Uh, things can escalate quickly sometimes. And even if you uh, if it's if they ask for money uh, or something else, you say, well, no, I don't have any or they ask for or anything like that. Uh, and you say, well, no, I don't have any, or you can just start the interaction. And then now they can respond. Well, what do you mean you don't have any? What do you mean you don't know? They boom, 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 and they keep talking. Sometimes that can be all it takes for things to escalate. Just you say something and then they respond and blah, blah, blah. Like I'm very much of the opinion, especially if you, you know, have any reason to suspect this person might be a racist or this is this is not in your agenda at all. You have any reason to think that this is not a person that I want to engage with right now. I didn't have this on my schedule for my Saturday, June 8. Not uttering a syllable is totally planned, ignoring they have a name for that. It's just it's it's uh, I think it's counterintuitive. Generally speaking, if someone speaks to you, you feel like, oh, yeah, I would you know answer their question, even if it's a stranger. But. No. Uh, In a system of racism, white supremacy, sometimes we have to be a little bit or just in general, I would encourage being a little bit more cautious in how we move through the world in public spaces. Planned ignoring. That is a strategy I employ all the time. Do not feel uh, obligated to to respond to people or answer their questions at all. Uh, I think I think you're very correct, Gus because I was confronted with a similar incident to what you are explaining with a white female who literally is in your passageway as you're leaving outside of the grocery store asking people for money in an area where the majority of the the uh, customers at this grocery store are non-white black people. And uh, I thought it was to my best interest if to, as to uh, I did want to respond to her, and uh, which was no, and just kept it pushing to avoid her because I because I, I I'm thinking if I stayed there and entertained not only my disapproval but to give some sort of uh, long equated statements on why that things could escalate and as we know from our studies that we have been sharing with one another over the years, all of us on the COWS program, things can go very bad for a non-white person and i.e. a non-white black male in in the confrontation with a white female in seconds. It can happen in seconds. You don't know who would, would be the person who transported her there it may be somebody in a car like you said armed uh, and looking right at the incident uh it could be a situation if uh the people in the grocery store come out to observe that somehow the the blame would shift on you <laughs> as a black male as opposed to this white female you know all different type of things can happen and have happened uh, uh, I'm not just saying it just to, uh, from a thought, there's some past experiences where this is actually have, have uh, twisted to the point to whereas it was the person who was harassed 
the non-white person who's harassed who actually ends up being the victim of uh, this type of uh, confrontation. So that the, all those things ought to be considered. Any other folks have comment, question, observation they wanted to make sure we got in? Anybody we missed completely or any last few comments, questions before we get ready to conclude? May I be heard? Greetings, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, the segment about, I think that was the Young Turks, where I did hear that metaphor about the, the Stanford case and Bill Cosby. I had never heard of that phrasing neither. Um, but when she was making commentary about the uh, the victim, um, law enforcement official that was being convicted, and uh, I guess maybe the judge was making commentary about him being a good person. He doesn't have a criminal record. But, hey, you know, it doesn't matter. And she was saying she is agreeing with that as well. And she says, but only if they could apply that same logic. With, see, she didn't say, I know she wanted, I, it just seemed like she was uh, trying to keep from saying white officers, um, in my opinion. She said, I guess the majority of the other officers, the arrest officers. But the thing was just to refer to that rape case, that I think that is the case where the uh, suspected racist judge, maybe it was a female or a male, was saying, oh, well, you know, we don't want to uh, ruin this person's career or his future. I could be incorrect, but uh, the uh, the other the other story where I think it was about the 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 baby deer, the fawn. Uh, I agree too about how they were describing, like, oh man, this is this looks so rare, and and I don't even think that they even say the term white. They just said albino and fair, and um, they were saying, you know, we have to watch for uh, the summer coming up and uh, the eyes and the skin or whatever. So it's just very interesting how they place a high priority on the uh, animal or the creature, especially if it's uh, albino. Um, but And I, I definitely want to also make a comment about eating healthy, and I'm definitely trying to do that myself. Because, uh, like, my dad, he was uh, he was neglected, and the uh, it wasn't necessarily... It w he was in the hospital because he had cancer, and uh, he was transported to, uh, I guess, like a rehab, rehabilitation center because he had his leg cut off. Um, and he just lived... He lived uh, um, uh, pretty sad life, and they stole his items. They took things from him, and he got pneumonia, and he pretty much died from, uh, you know, the cancer. They wasn't giving him the cancer treatment, so he was just treated just very terribly. And I think he definitely could have lived a longer life. So that's a good point about the life expectancy. Um. But just, you know, keeping a, a healthy existence and 
that's something to also be mindful of. And that's all I have for now. Thanks for allowing me to share. Mm. Thank you for sharing, caller in Florida. I'm sorry to hear about your father's health. Uh, again, that is, you know, the deliberate design of white supremacy. And uh, in fact, Dorothy Roberts, three-time guest on the context of white supremacy. The first time she was a guest on the program, we had a listener ask her about black people getting higher rates of amputations. She went back and did the research. She included it in her second book, uh, Fatal Invention. Well, no, that's her third book. She included in her third book, Fatal Invention, that... Uh, black people indeed do get higher rates of uh, when they have to remove uh, a limb uh, or amputations. They get higher rates of amputations. Uh, and she thinks that that is racism, white supremacy, as you stated, them not getting uh, quality care to address these problems from the coon man uh, and then the bad diet and, and all of that. That is also racism, white supremacy, which leads to these drastic measures, which obviously, you know, destroy, well, I won't say destroy, but I mean, uh, greatly reduce your quality of life. I mean, you would much rather, you know, avoid amputation, uh, if at all possible, I would think, common sense. Uh, but yes, thank you for sharing about your father. I'm sure a lot of victims of racism have relatives and people that they care about that they can reference uh, who have been victimized in this manner by the system of white supremacy. So, uh, just trying to do uh, what we can in a very toxic environment to eat better, take care of ourselves, see that as a, as a critical component of counter-racism. Anybody have any other final thoughts they want to make sure they get in before we uh, get ready to conclude that you can get in 60 seconds or less? Any uh, other folks? Assume everybody is good. Can I be heard? Oh, Imhan DC, yes, sir. Uh, sorry for my exclamation um, earlier when uh, the caller from uh, Florida was speaking about his father. That was just I'm, I feel I feel for you. So thank you. Fathers are important. Mothers are important. Uh, let's try as best we can to uh, take care of ourselves, each other. That right there, uh, certainly if you are an attempted parent, that is a critical aspect of being an attempted parent. You want to do as much as you can so that you can be around uh, to assist your children as long as possible. And they're your grandchildren, uh, hopefully. So that right there should be a big motivation. I cannot be uh, an attempted parent and sit around and eat Cheetos. Uh, and nonsense uh, and say that, oh, yeah, I am doing my job as an attempted counter-racist parent when you're not even going to be around in a capacity to be a high-quality attempted parent if such a thing even exists in the system of white supremacy. That's it. Much obliged for everyone participating. Again, Mr. Lowry, file a police report. You can wait. Get the championship. Then... File a police report against that thug. Uh, and I thought that was name calling. I looked up the definition of thug. The definition of a thug is a violent person. That Mr. Stevens 
you would be the epitome of a thug. That is thug behavior. Violently assaulting an unarmed, harmless basketball player who has done nothing to you. That's, yeah, thuggish. Thugging at the 2019 Finals, co-owner of the Warriors, Mark Stevens, file a police report. Uh, And that would be my suggestion for any victim of racism. Uh, A white person puts their hands on you in this sort of uh, situation. Uh, File a police report. You don't have to do it that day. You can go to the station. You can call some departments. You can even do that sort of thing uh, online. File a police report. Very important in the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, With that, much obliged to all the folks who participated. Uh, Register for the Cows 10-Year Anniversary Yoga Retreat, Quality Eating and Exercise, August 29 through September 1. Uh, Register by tomorrow. Drop an email if you need more details. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Lots of non-white people are further abused, taken advantage of, and we're not thinking correctly, have been using those poisons that racists disseminate. Let's keep our brain computer operating optimally. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no let's stay off the cell phone as well that's another method that they use to cause a lot of unnecessary problems talk once we are parked with that creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.